This is exactly right. Of the Law & Order franchises, SVU is considered especially watchable. We are the amateur detectives who kind of investigate the vicious felonies these episodes are based on. These are our stories. Dun-dun! Hi, welcome to That's Messed Up, an SVU podcast. I am Kara Clank. And I'm Lisa Traeger. We talk SVU, we talk crimes, and then we have amazing guests. And we're so excited that you are joining us today. We have a jam-packed superstar episode, I would say. So thrilling that you're joining us. Also, I didn't tell you, um, I saw Leland, Creator oh, of uh, RuPaul songs, yeah, he was at the Soho House show. So, I got oh, to that's see fun. He's such a nice guy. It was thrilling. And um, Barbie Ferreira from Euphoria was there. Oh, excuse me, Look right? At you rubbing elbows. It was really thrilling. She was, yeah, I felt like a cool kid and great Cosmos. I think Cosmos my new drink. I had a great one at El Pinguino in New York. It needs to be a classy place. You don't want like. You don't want a bad Cosmo, but... I like it to be light pink, like light. It should not be red. It should not have so much cranberry juice in it. Like, it's just, that's a splash, baby. Should be tart and pink and amazing and in thick fucking beautiful glassware. And that's what this... I'm not a member of the Soho House. I was just performing. I am not that cool. (laughs) She was the hired help. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There were just celebs happened to have been there, but... um, the the glass, I love the Soho House glassware. It feels so special. I went there one time and tried to take a picture of the view and I got in trouble. I didn't, no one had told me that you're not allowed to take photos there. So I was like not taking a picture of a celebrity. I was truly like, oh, what a nice view. And they were like, no photos. And I was like, okay, thank you. Now I feel uncomfortable the entire time. But I saw a movie in their little screening room and it was um, cool. It was cool. They have like a deal for young members. Like I think people that are like under 30 and I went with people that were young, like young and this was years ago, but... Yeah, I think they're trying to like, you know, give a deal to young hotties so that they can fill the place up with people like that. But creatives, you have to be Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I went with an actor and yeah. Um, but I don't even know who Barbie Ferrer is because I don't watch it. But I, I'm sorry, I don't watch Euphoria, so I don't know her character, but I just know who she is from Instagram and I'm like intimidated by her. <laughs> like, no, she's she so, cool. so cool. I actually did talk to her because I said, you know, not to be a creep, but I've been a fan of yours for years because years ago for Halloween, she dressed up as Isabella Rossellini from Death Becomes Her. Oh, amazing. And she had like the pin top and and then her partner was like, well, that's a deep cut. And I'm like, I'm not a creep. I just love Halloween. <laughs> so, yeah. And that movie. Did but, you um, know her from something before Euphoria at all? From be- For being a model. Oh, got it. I was like, she was a fashion girl model for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I just have been following her career. Amazing. Um, I'm taking my kids to DragCon this weekend. I know this is in the time machine. This will have passed by, but I just wanted to let Lisa know that I'm bringing both of my children. I was able to score free tickets because, you know, I still have one or two connects over at the old WOW. And so I'm really excited. Did you have to get tickets for the kids? They're free, but you do have to get tickets for them. And um, 
I just like was like, listen, don't make me pay. I'm going to be in there for an hour and a half with two kids that could explode at any moment. Like, don't make me pay. <laughs> like, so I got free tickets. Um, and I'm excited. I'm going to go see the queens, see the dolls, introduce them to my little nuggets, and we'll see who's there. I'm really excited for the kids. And Are I've been you telling dress them up. I don't. Would you so. tell them? I told Rosie. I said we're going to go to this like special thing, and we're going to see um drag queens. And she goes from Drag Race because she knows about the show Drag Race. Because she's seen me watch it before. I don't think she knows what drag queens really are, but I do think she's just going to be wowed by like the spectacle of it all. And I think she's going to love if she sees any guys' butts. She'll be like, booties. She's going to love it. Um, Yeah, I don't know how kids don't. That's why the people that are like, why are drag queens reading to kids? And it's like, because they're full of glitter and color. Like, what are you talking about? Yeah, or they're like, like no kink at, or they're like no kink at pride because it's a family event. And I'm like, Rosie doesn't know. You could like hand Rosie a double-sided dildo and she'd be like, I'm going to get you. Like, you know, she's not, it's not, that doesn't bother me. Like, it's not, I don't know. It's wild what people think is hurting their children. And I think they'll all realize when their kids are addicted to Oxy because they shame them for their entire lives. Um, okay, wow, dark, dark and Coming quick. out, Wait. coming out strong. <laughs> Hold on. You know what else? We were right, we, we called out the Dirty Shirley before New York Magazine did, oh. so... How Love cool is that? that? And I know people say this, and then I actually said this to someone in person, and they're like, yeah, yeah. But I was espresso martini before the craze, and I was Dirty Shirley before the craze, and I just know what's up. So sorry. It is really funny, though, how things come back around. Like, I had to make espresso martinis all the time in 2001 when I worked as a bar t- as a waitress in Boston. And then they did totally, like, come back. Or, like, Negronis came back, like, two summers ago. Or I'm not a gin girl. No. I mean, listen. Uh, somebody also wrote to us and was like, Dirty Shirley's, all that sugar. I'm not suggesting anyone pound seven Dirty Shirley's in a night. Like, one or two. You really can't drink those all night or you will. Feel no, like shit. but I had a like I was hungover on Monday and I had to host that a show and I just had a Shirley Temple mm. to get the night started just to like pump me up, taste delicious. Like no one's saying it has to be your full evening right. cocktail always. But and I wish I could drink espresso martinis with you guys because what a f- how fun to like be getting drunk but also getting like a little caffeine buzz. And that I just don't like the spe- taste. But that's specific, like, Cosmos. Like, you don't want it to be light and creamy. You want it to be super dark with foam on top. Mm. Like, I hate when it's... If I... So now I ask now. I go, is it light or dark before I order? Well, we were at um, Portland having dinner before our show. and They made a weird thing. They did bring you basically an iced coffee and a martini glass. <laughs> but it had, like, some spices. I mean, I don't know. I was um, <laughs> excited to get tipsy, I guess. So it was all right. Yeah, but... Oh, I, this is like not that new of a story, but you know, we have talked about the guy who was being charged with murder because of a Fitbit. His wife's Fitbit provided evidence and he lied to authorities and they were able to prove it with the Fitbit. He has been convicted. So he has been convicted of murder in Connecticut. And it, the case was built on the evidence provided by the Fitbit exercise. I don't think tracker. I knew that that was in Connecticut when we first talked about it. Damn. Vernon, Connecticut. Vernon, Connecticut. Wow, I'm not even positive where that is. Yeah. Um, that's that's wild. There, there's like so many random murders happening in Connecticut of wives lately also. Because in 2019, this woman with five children w- disappeared from my town. And 
Her husband definitely killed her because he tried to take his own life like a few weeks later and failed, I think. And yeah, it's like the Jennifer Dulos case. There was like a huge article about it in, oh gosh, Vanity Fair, I think. And uh, oh no, he did die. He did die eventually. His suicide attempt didn't work for like a while and then he was in the hospital and then he did die. So he died too. So now these kids have no kids because this man was like a crazy narcissist who had to kill his wife, ex-wife. Um, and yeah, they're from my town. But luckily her family's very loaded and so her parents are going to take care of these children and, you know, small silver lining. I think the Connecticut of it all just off basic stereotypes is... Um, repressed, living a lie yeah. about appearances, mm-hmm. people that are like gay in the city, straight in the suburbs. Totally. Like that kind of vibe. And so I, and and not talking about feelings. And I think that leads to murder. Yeah. And just like dickhead finance people. Yeah, totally. It's, you're right. That is all the ingredients that are in Connecticut. It's like the secret family capital of the Northeast for sure. Secret um, family capital <laughs> is hysterical. <laughs> yeah, I was just talking to someone, not so much about lying, but like about lying, just like people that are so no shame will trick you into hiring them, even though they don't even have the skills. Like the arrogant, like I was just talking with our friend Sydney, where I, sometimes she's like, I wish I was psycho like some of these people. Yeah. Sometimes you like look at the fake it till you make it people. I wish I could just run in there and be like, oh yeah, I could do that and not be able to do it and be fine with that. Yeah. I actually would never want to be like that. But we were just talking shit about people. I I would think that that would give you an absolute ulcer to just know that you're like, we all, everybody gets a little bit of imposter syndrome here and there, but like you truly are not qualified for the job that you're doing. And aren't you just so worried every day that someone's going to bust you? But I guess not. I guess part of it is like you have blinders to that shame or that worry. But they also teach you that. Lie on your resume. Fluff it up. Lie in the interview. Who gives a shit? And then you get the job and it's like, what the fuck are you doing here? (laughs) You're actually affecting people's lives. So like, what are you doing? Yeah. You fucking grifter. (laughs) I don't know. I um, Well, yeah, I mean, definitely there's a spectrum between like fluff up your res because I've definitely fluffed my resume a little bit and, you know, full fake like lying or saying, you know, like fucking Dr. Death, like somehow this man is able to do surgeries when he doesn't know how. Like that was like the ultimate fake it till you make it story that I, when I listened to a fellow Wondery podcast, Dr. Death about this man like went to medical school, did not do enough surgeries and then is just doing surgeries on people, killing them and paralyzing them and no one is stopping him because he's just confident. He was like a football player. It's like he learned how to be confident on the football field and translated that to his medical life. Yeah, and you just see people work and maneuver at these parties and the way they speak and suddenly you're like, oh, you're like a calculated lunatic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Look at you work this room. As our friends call it, shark eyes. Yes. Oh, a bunch of shark-eyed fucking freaks. All right, guys, in two days on June 9th, we are going to be in San Francisco at Cobb's Comedy Club. Help us sell this fucker out. It's going to be so fun. We love San Francisco. We're really excited to meet you guys. We have special tour merch. We're, we're pumped. Please come. Um, and then later in the month of June, on the 19th, we're going to be at the Minneapolis Comedy Festival. Look, that's a four o'clock show. Can easily brunch with your dad and then bounce to go to our four o'clock show and then 
be back with your dad, whatever. I don't know what your dad obligations are. I know it's Father's Day, but just come see us. And then on the 20th and the 21st, we're going to be at Zany's downtown in Chicago. Uh, one show per night. Different shows, by the way. If you want to see us cover different episodes, do different games, everything like that, buy tickets to both nights. I'm, I'm not going to stop you. And um, yeah, that's it. And now, get ready. This episode's about to blow your mind. Wow. No pun intended. All right. We are doing Lost, Season 5, Episode 4. 54 is my lucky number. No big deal. And (laughs) I would say this is a truly iconic episode of television. Changed us view forever. Uh, I don't know. I love this episode, and I feel honored to be talking about it. So it opens up, and it's a woman with blonde hair and leopard pants with a neon green shirt and blazer, and she has a white mini poodle on with on a leash with a pink bow in the hair. So iconic, iconic start. The woman is like the younger version of the older woman in... Um, something about Mary. Yeah, Magda. <laughs> okay, was that her name? So she yeah. has that kind of vibe of like... She just, seems so familiar to me and I looked her up and she's only been in like a couple of episodes of Law & Order and SVU and I'm like, I swear this woman's in movies and no. Well, it's like a type. It's like what yeah. bleach blonde hair, super tan, just like cookie, you know, yeah. like very... Obsessed with her dog. <laughs> yeah. And... um. I also did do a rewatch recently on a plane of something about Mary, and one of the detectives is named Detective Stabler. And huh. but it's hard to research like why, or maybe someone loved SVU, or was this before, or after, because or like because I was like maybe there is a old timey Detective Stabler in like a black and white movie we don't know about. But if you look up Stabler on Google, it's mostly about did. Elliot Stabler. Yeah, I just did, and I literally have never met a person with the last name Stabler in my life. Yeah, so you know? I was like, I'm not digging through all Elliot Stabler stuff to find if there's an elderly thing, but. I didn't know if maybe Stabler is some Latin word that <sighs> means uh, detective. Like, who fucking knows? I just thought the coincidence of having two detective Stablers is kind of wild. Mm. Um, so she's doing baby talk with the dog um, and then pulls a bad girl move. She leaves the dog shit. But also, who can blame her? No one wants to touch dog shit. It's honestly, <laughs> like, the worst, grossest thing ever. But also a bitch move. Like, dog shit on a cement is gross and it's worse than on grass. Like, yeah. dog shit in the streets of Brooklyn is... Un- it's so unsightly. The thing is, I've dog sat and I didn't want to pick up the shit. And I've tried to pretend and be like, oh, I don't. And then someone caught me. Like, I, it is a disgusting chore. It's probably one of the main reasons I don't want a dog. Like, I just do not want to pick up the shit. I know I have kids, but like at three years old, they're doing their own shit, you know? Not at three. You're still wiping the butt. No, Rosie does. Rosie pretty much does it herself. She's wiping her own ass. Yeah. That's pretty wild. If she needs help, I'm like, I'm, I might do like a quick, like, you know, backup wipe, but it's not, I'm not touching shit, you know? No, I would babysat people way older than Rosie that just like fully bend over and I have to wipe their butts. And it's like, I babysat for a five-year-old who goes, can you come in and pull it out? And I was like, I texted his mom. She goes, you don't have to do that. I go, yeah. I, I mean, I wasn't going to, but I just texted her to just see like, is this normal? practice. <laughs> That's 
Disgusting. Yeah, it's gross. Um, but anyway, I, I, I know I, I don't like the feeling of like putting your hand in the bag and touching like warm poop on a dog. No, and our friends, the Joyce's, I've dog sat their dog, Chevy, who has the most giant shits I've ever yeah, seen. Like Chevy's a turbo shitter. It is like so giant. It, I don't know. But a little dog, maybe a little Pomeranian. Anyways, <laughs> this dog's name is Tootsie. So that's cute. And Tootsie loves garbage. And she starts digging in the trash. And um, her owner's like, ew you're better than that but then goes oh my god a fur coat okay tootsie <laughs> and she's about to steal this fur coat out of the trash but little does she know she's in the opening of an episode of SVO <laughs> so sorry lady there is a dead woman underneath that coat she screams oh no and runs off so now we cut to the police and they're on the scene and the victim is Olivia Tejas she's 23 years old from Queens Found naked. That's upsetting. Purse with money and cards are still in the trash. This is not a robbery. And just covered in this fur. Melinda with straightened hair tells Benson in her full golden Bieber social studies teacher moment. Uh, (laughs) And a brown suede jacket. And I think I need... Well, I don't... Suede, it seems hard to take care of. But I hugged someone yesterday that was in a tan suede jacket and it felt nice. Yeah. It's like a nice material um, for all those suede heads out there. So the victim hasn't even been dead for 12 hours. There's no stab or gunshot wounds. There's trauma just to the left side of the face and torso, which means that she was beaten to death, which is fucked up. Like, how hard do you have to beat someone to kill them? Like, that is, yeah, yeah, very Sopranos. Yeah, yeah, So... There are fluids, and she was moved post-mortem, so this is not the place of the murder. Stabler with his sunnies, like, halfway down his nose, like, very... uh, And, like, the shape of the sunglasses isn't, like, full American flag Twitter guy, but not not that. Like, not a great shape of glasses. It's also, like, David Caruso in um, CSI. Like, he was always whipping his glasses off and shit. Yeah, it, it's not a good them. thing. And he like you, he goes dump job, but why here? And it's like just stop using that word. I don't know. It's so disrespectful. <laughs> um. So while Benson and Stabler pass theories back and forth, Melinda is digging something out of the victim's mouth. Um. And what we find out is the killer cut the tongue out of the mouth. So. That's obviously a message. and But the tongue is nowhere to be found. So Melinda goes, I would check that dog. And then it cuts to the credits. <laughs> Tootsie totally ate that tongue. <laughs> we cut back from the credits to a landlord who has all the scoop. Um, Olivia is pretty and nice, but he didn't really know her. She lived there two years, paid on time, and that's it. He thought she was illegal, but then he believes that the whole country was founded on illegals. So who is he to judge? And you can't argue with that. Um, But then he's like so on it. He's just like Puerto Rican, Mexican. I can't tell the difference. And I just, I like, I like this guy's honesty. You know, he, um, he brings his opinions out on, out, out. His opinions are out. He lets you know. He loves illegals, but he doesn't know exactly where they're from. (laughs) We get a glimpse of Ice in his full puffy ponytail era. So him and Munch get from the apartment. Like, she wasn't home very much. The apartment's very empty. And then the landlord's like, oh, God, I got a leaky pipe to fix. And that is the biggest piece of fiction I've ever seen on SVU. A landlord running to fix the pipe. That's (laughs) when, when. 
When is he yeah. leaving to rush to actually do a job and not going? Is it your fault the pipe is leaking? Like this is, uh, this is uh, a farce. But Ice, you know, rev- reveals how Munch lives like a monk. So he goes, "Can you explain why someone would live a life with no knickknacks or photos?" And I'm like, "I'm with you, Ice. You know, where are the knickknacks? Yeah, show us the knickknacks." <laughs> and Munch says, "Well, some people like to live simply, but also maybe some people lost all their knickknacks in the divorce." And <laughs> I want to know what knickknacks all of Munch's ex-wives took from him. Like, what was it? Did he have the bullet from the JFK shooting? Like, what is Munch collecting? But Munch does find something in the drawer, and it's a plane ticket from Miami the day she died. So that's, you know, something. Ice also pulls a Benson and is like, damn, look at all this designer stuff. This is where she spent her money. And then he calls it ho gear, which I love. And, you know, Ice or Finn loves a strip club. So we know that he's well-versed in ho gear. I think he says ho gear with love. Oh, yeah. No, not an insult at all. With love, yes. Oh, no. He goes, wow, look at this brand name Hogear. Like, he <laughs> loved it. He goes, this He's is impressed. worth real money. Yeah, he yeah. goes, this is where she's spending her cash. This is high-quality Hogear. Um, but she's not illegal. They find a social security card. And so we're back in the squad room trying to figure things out because things are fishy. Stabler says there's no action on that social until 2001. The license she has is from 2001. She has no relatives. It's like she appeared out of thin air. And they have already checked all the witness protection stuff. There's nothing there. So Munch goes, listen, I know I'm the resident kook, but what if it's a spook? Love the rhyming. Um, And that means spy, for those who don't know. And Cragen suggests hitting up the CIA to see what's up. But first, we got to stop at the morgue. And Melinda says that the talk screen came back positive of cocaine, but there was a necklace caught in her hair. And it's of what... uh, We're going to find out later it's not this, but it looks like a Mother Mary Baby Jesus moment, okay? (laughs) It's like a Catholic iconography necklace. Uh, Benson makes a little joke. She's like, oh, a Latina who's a Catholic? That'll narrow it down, so... I love a joke at the morgue, keeping it light um, as dead bodies surround you. So now there are cuts on her legs that were made by uh, slivers of fiberglass inside it. So that is a clue, the fiberglass. And the lab said that there was powder on the fur coat and she sprays down the fur coat and it turns purple, which means that it was covered in cocaine. So... Maybe she was a dealer, but they don't understand how she could be a dealer because it didn't look like she had wealth or drugs. So, you know, they don't know. So the detectives go outside and Stabler shows us why he makes the big bucks. He notices a Chevy Caprice with two white males that has been following them. So the detectives start running towards the car as it speeds off. So Benson's like, what the hell is this? And they're yelling and they're both kind of breathing heavy. And Stabler has another smart idea. He's like, oh, fuck, this is a hooker with a soul. That sounds like someone Sister Peg would want to save. And so he is right on the money. They head, you know, towards Sister Peg. And she says she's never seen the girl, but agrees to ask all her girls if they recognize her. And she's unloading boxes and boxes of dental dams. And she goes, they're flying off the shelves. And I just like... Are John's paying to go down on women? Like I, know. I just like I just don't understand. I don't I don't under I don't believe this. I don't believe that all of these Johns are just obsessed with dental damn work. Like, I don't know. I No, that is very observant and funny. I did not pick up on that. And like yes. why couldn't have been, yeah. been condoms or birth control or something? But like the dental dam of it all takes me out of the yeah. realistic nature of what 
what I assume most sex work is about, which is not. Right. I don't think the Johns are like, now it's my turn, you know, yeah. like. <laughs> Bring the dental dam out. Yeah. Like, I just, uh, but Sister Peg, you know more than I do. Um, they do ask her about the image of the necklace. She knows more than me. It is not Mother Mary. It is another saint. It's based on a painting and it's the Crescent Moon patron saint from Colombia. And she knows a place in the Bronx um, with a giant population of Colombians who attend mass. So maybe, you know, maybe it's someone that goes to that church. So the main guy there, they go rush to talk to him because Sister Peg has a connect with him. And he actually hasn't seen Olivia in two to three months. Olivia, the victim. Why'd they name her Olivia? Yeah. Do they not know we have a recap podcast? (laughs) Like, what is going on here? So... Um, but she did come come to the church for about two years, uh, but was very secretive. And he begged her to come to confession. But she said after her work was done, but didn't say what kind of work. But he got the feeling that she was rich. She donated all of her furniture once and it was picked up in a giant shipping container. So then they're like, wait, 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 wait. Do you know where the storage is? Like, tell us all about the storage. So they rush off to a shipping place, um, a storage facility that Kara knows much about storage facilities. <laughs> and um, off uh, Benson and Stabler go to Queens and this lady paid for three years in advance, money bags. They open it up and there's a ton of stuff. So they start rifling through all the stuff and they find 1999 taxes and photos, but they're all filed under a different last name and social. Stabler in a box labeled 2001 finds a badge. She was a cop. Dun, dun. And boom, in walks some suit boys and Stabler calls them rats. And they're the guys who've been tailing them and they are DEA. One is really hot and one is less hot. They agree <laughs> to a sit down. The DEA guys walk into Cragen's office and he's like, what the fuck? Why are you tailing my detectives? And they're like... And they are being reasonable. Like, we just needed to make sure you weren't the bad guys. Like, we just had to make sure everything was good. And uh, they were, the DEA was actually notified when Olivia's prints went into the system, but they didn't realize that she was dead. And the hot man does look down and sad at the news of the death of their coworker. We don't know yet. Um, nobody knows why she was killed, but the tongue was cut out. So obviously there's more to it. Cragen is like, boys, we need some answers. What was she doing? They say that her case intersected with theirs and the NYPD loaned her to us. And Cragen gets pissed like an NYPD officer got raped and killed on your watch. And they say, clearly we didn't want that either, but this is a two-year operation that's cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. And there are two more operatives left in the field. So, you know, and they were introduced by the victim. So if it comes out that she's a cop, everyone is fucked. But Benson goes, yeah, but we can't do nothing. This case was all over the papers. Um, And Cragen says, fine, okay, we can play ball. What we can do is we can investigate the murder of a hooker dating a drug dealer and nobody needs to hear about any undercover job or DEA. Like, deal, deal, yes, we all want that. And they're like, and not a word to your ADA. And it's like, okay, okay. Like, I just don't get why these dorks don't realize that they're all on the same side. Like, I don't... Benson and Stabler and Cragen aren't trying to protect these bad guys, you know? Um, But then the DEA says they're not going to help with anything and they're just like, good luck out there. And it's like, okay, thanks. Like, don't... uh, What? What? What is this? I just... It's so weird how all these different agencies are always like fighting against each other. And it's like, why can't you all work together? I don't, you know... Because they all want the credit. 
So Cragen rounds up the main crew. Ice, Benson, Stabler, and Munch. Um, anything happens in that room stays in the room. They're going in their own separate room and they know they have to keep this super secret for the safety of everyone. So they start working, but Ice is super no- nervous because he knows all about the Colombian drug dealers from his days in narcotics. So he's like, um, <laughs> are, are we yeah. sure? Are we sure, guys? Um, but we get a rundown on Olivia and she went to Hudson U, an alum, so pretty thrilling. She's used to being sexually assaulted, I'm sure. <laughs> it's like how you get in. Um, they send Ice to talk to an old pal from narcotics. They meet at a cemetery and the guy has flowers in hand and is like, okay, deep throat vibes. And Ice is like, any better ideas? And the guy goes, yeah, stay away from me. Stay away from this case. Like, drop it. Um, but he does give some information. He says the name of the main, like the major player is Cesar Velez. And he supplies 10% of cocaine that comes into the U.S. And he has a lot of cousins that help him do things in New York. Um, and he's actually in Colombia, but the U.S. is trying to extradite his ass right now for killing a judge and an informant. So he's a big-time criminal. And I wonder if this was like a random cemetery that they went to and put flowers on a random plot, or maybe they do have a mutual friend that has died and been buried at the cemetery. So I was just curious about that. Um, But then Finn's friend also gives him his informant and is like, you can go talk to this informant of mine and he can help. Um, So he's giving him scoop, just like bust his ass for possession, he'll talk and then give you stuff. So but this is a clue, I think. Um, so basically for the informant, he gives the advice just like bust the informant's ass on possession and he'll talk. So that's fine. And then he says this. He goes, these people will take down a commercial airliner to take out one person. There are no rules. So I feel like this is a foreshadow, a warning, uh, everything. Like the there are no morals here. Um, Ice doesn't care. Wait, do you watch the Miami Housewives? I don't. I mean, so, I watched a little bit when it was first on, so I kind of know who, like, Marisol is or whatever, but I don't really watch. So I don't either, but while I was staying with our friend Julia in New York, it was on, and we just binge-watched some episodes, and there is... So one of the wives is married to Martina Naratavaloba. I can't yeah. even say her last name, and she's... Yeah. I feel like she's one of mine from the block, but <laughs> cannot even say her last name. But so her wife used to be married to a giant, huge Russian uh, mob-type guy who had their child murdered. <gasps> he, like, implanted... Martina Navratilova's wife was yes. married to a Russian guy who had their kid murdered? Yeah, he, like, brought a special ops nanny who shook the baby to death. Why? He didn't want to have a baby. <gasps> Or, like, to disconnect and she had married someone else or it was revenge. Like, I have no idea. But she has, like, a murdered child from her husband who was in the mob. So, in terms of, like— How did she even get out alive? Jesus. Yeah, and she talks about— There's, like, a lot— The Miami Housewives are very open and cool about a lot of their lives. No, people say it's great. I should watch it. I I, just—I haven't gotten into, like, the peacock of it all. So, yeah, it's just, like, scary. Mobsters are scary is what we've uh, learned in all of this. Or you have probably know that. But maybe you didn't know that the mob goes into the housewives. And that's pretty interesting. I mean, I did from Jersey a little bit because I remember, like, actually talking about all this, like, her tongue getting cut off. Like, I forgot that, like, I haven't watched a lot of mob movies and I forgot that, like, when the mob kills people, like, a lot of times there's, like, a message. Like, so the tongue is, like, you talk to keep your mouth shut or whatever. But, like, um, I remember I was at a bar in New York once and I met this guy who, like, knew everything about the Manzos on New Jersey. And you know how um, Caroline Manzo's husband... um, 
Al or whatever, his father was like killed and was in the mob and he was killed with his hands cut off. And I was, and the guy goes, you know what that means, right? And I was like, I don't. He goes, it means he stole from the mob. And I was like, oh my God, like I didn't know all that. So this is reminding me of other housewives drama. Well, and I don't want to reveal too much about people's lives that aren't on our own, but we know a comedian whose father was found murdered in the Brownstone parking lot. So yes, yes. There's a lot of, I guess, yeah, a lot of mob um, in the house and crimes. (laughs) (laughs) It's just interesting to me when you say that, that this woman was able to A, get away from this mobster and then also get married to a very high profile person and be on a TV show. Yeah. 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 You know, and not feel like she kind of has like a target on her back. That's like, you know, maybe, maybe she made a deal with him or something, whatever. Who fucking knows? Maybe she's got something on him. So we're back in... So now we're at interrogation. Ice did not listen to the warnings at all. He went and got the informant. The informant is Felix. And if you watch The Wire, this is Bubbles from The Wire. Um, And he's in a fake Adidas red jumpsuit. There's not three stripes. There is two. He (laughs) is... Um, wait, what was Karen Huger's fake Fendi? Do you remember that? I don't remember that one because that was before I joined Potomac. Um, so they're playing, you know, who has more leverage, what's going on. There's a dancing game. There's a generic soda can. And (laughs) finally they show a photo of, um, the victim, Olivia, and he calls her a cream puff because that's what Raphael calls her. And so what does that mean? And Munch is like, who is Raphael? Like, we don't know your friend group. And it's Zapata. So it's Raphael Zapata. And he is a lieutenant for this, for Cesar Velez. And... Olivia was banging him and she was hot. But when she got high, she got mouthy and he doesn't like women that are mouthy. Um, And I guess she always talked about how his dick sucked and didn't work in front of his friends. So he did smack (laughs) her a lot. (laughs) But it is like, honestly, you should never get hit by anyone, but you do know who you're dealing with. Like you can't talk about his like bad dick in front of his friends. Like, he will hit you. I don't know. It's like, I'm blaming the victim. I'm sorry. I don't know what to tell you. You can't You can't do that. Also, yeah, it's probably coke dick. Like, he should just stop using his own supply. I know, but if you're, if someone is second command in the mob, like... Oh, yeah, keep you your mouth shut. <laughs> you cannot talk about his impotence. Like, you cannot. Um, yeah, rule of culture number 57. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Last culturista <laughs> style. Do not talk about a drug lord's impotent dick in front of his friends. Like, you will be murdered. Or at all. I would say even in private. Keep yeah. your mouth shut about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we get pics. We get a group meeting. Um, so Zapata's been arrested twice, but never indicted because someone always came forward and confessed to the crimes. And Munch says, yeah, it's probably someone with family back in Colombia. So it's like, do what you're told or your family gets it. Um, and so that really sucks for people. God, just don't get involved with the mob. Being poor sucks. Life is terrible. How do we go on with our world. It's like, I don't... (sighs) God. And you know what keeps replaying is the fucking Barrio episode from this season, the burning alive of a woman. Like, I don't know when that's going to leave my nightmares. Like, I I don't think a day has gone by since I've seen that episode where I do not think about that. Like, it fucked me up. So Benson says that Zapata is very rich and has a lot of businesses and oil drilling and yada yada. Just like a lot of money laundering. 
So now we have to tie him to the murder. Um, they were both on the same flight from Miami to New York, so that might be a clue. Um, and they also went to a cafe. So let's go to the cafe and see if anyone has remembered them because they spent $4,000 that day, and a lot of it was at that cafe. So they head on over, and they speak to front-of-house manager kind of guy, suit and tie, about Zapata, and he just looks straight forward, no emotion, and goes, I'm sorry, I don't know that person. And Stabler's like, we'll protect you like you know was he with this chick and he goes no he wasn't and Benson goes we will charge you with obstruction and he replies then charge me I have a wife and three children and I can't help you and he walks away and I respect this motherfucker yeah. like get the fuck away from me I know what I'm dealing with and you are not I take put me in jail so they're going to leave him alone, which is rare. Usually they bully witnesses that don't want to help, but they leave him be, which is wild. And then they're like deciding, they're like, well, we can't tell if he was paid off or scared. And it's like, he looked very scared to me. Your detective senses are off. Like, this man is terrified for his life. So Agent Donovan, um, the hottie, he calls Benson and wants a meeting now. Where's the meeting taking place? At a roof across the street. They're being watched. He's in casual sweater wear and he's pissed that they talked to his informant, Felix. They do a pissing contest where Stabler's finally like, you know what, dude? You were supposed to protect her and you let her die. And he, of course, doesn't take that well. But like, he's like, I didn't realize she was doing drugs and in that deep. Yes, I should have pulled her. But I thought she was doing what she had to do to get the job done. Like, she wanted to nail these guys too. And he admits it was his fault and his mistake. And Benson's like, yeah, well, we don't want to take your case. But please tell us something. Help us implicate Zapata. We're flying blind here. And he goes, fine. Okay, I'll help you make this right. And he says that the fiberglass Melinda found indicates that he knows where the killing took place. Cut to the precinct, and it's a photo of a yacht being dropped onto a desk. And um, finally, we get some Alex Cabot action. Thank you. I mean, and we find out about this boat. Um, Benson refers to it as a love boat, and it is parked in Battery Park. Are there yachts in Battery Park? I didn't really go that far downtown very often. I guess I didn't really go. I've been down there to like a playground, I guess, when I babysat, but like not really to the watery part, I guess. Probably. I don't know. Yeah, like, I've taken the Staten Island Ferry, and that's pretty low downtown, but, like, I don't know if I've ever seen, like, yachts, so Other something... boats, like, tied up. Yeah, like, I only have at the 79th Street Boat Basin, so I don't really know where people keep their boats. Or, like, on the other side, the west yeah. side, I there's boats, but... Whatever. I mean, if you yeah. have a, if you have a boat, let us know. We'll meet you there. Okay. Uh, <laughs> we'll grab Diane Neal and we will show up. We so, will be on your boat. <laughs> yeah. That's actually a good way to get on a boat. Be like, we will bring Diane Neal if you let us <laughs> on your boat. So if you're in the New York, Jersey, tri-state area and you have a boat, this is a deal that can be made. Yes. Hit us up. Diane doesn't know about it yet, but we are using her as leverage. <laughs> now back to... This ADA, it's Cabot. And she already starts making jokes about how tiny Zapata's dick is because of the size of the boat. So <laughs> this guy's dick can't get a break. Now, <laughs> remember... They can't tell Cabot what's up. They promised the DEA that they would not tell the ADA. So they're just focusing on the murder. And they say that the glass comes from a yacht. But Alex is pushing, like, how do you know? They say an informant. She goes, but how do I know it's reliable? They go, it's reliable. But yes, I need help. I need my job. This is my job on the line. And they're like, we can't tell you. And she goes, fine, I'll find a warrant anyways. I just, why are you guys so annoying? <laughs> um, but Stabler goes, just trust us, trust us. And Alex, by the way, is having her full wispy 
bang moment in glasses. We are living. So, uh, you know, to me, I go trust them. These are, I was about to say they're ethical detectives, but that's not always true with one of them. Well, actually with both of them. Okay. Anyways. So now, bam, they are busting a party on the boat. Good music. Lots of drinks. There's flutes. Like, I'm not flutes, the instrument, like flute glasses. (laughs) Champagne Champagne flutes. flutes. Yeah. (laughs) I was like, flutes. Now that Lizzo's brought flutes to the main front, it's tough. (laughs) Um, A lot of tube tops, summer skirts, um, and our duo is in bulletproof vests looking very sexual. Everyone's hands are up and Stabler yells for Zapata, who walks down in a light-colored suit, windy step style, calm as hell. And he goes, I am Rafael Zapata. And Ben's, I honestly didn't even have to rewatch this episode to write this line by line. Like, that is how much I fucking love this Yeah, yeah. So Benson serves him a warrant. He says, I have nothing to hide. Stabler says, are you sure about that? And Zapata responds, law enforcement always look through my shit and they never find anything. And then one of my favorite lines in the series, Stabler says, well, this time you don't know what we're looking for. That's good. I I think that's good. Benson is pulling sheets off a bed and is like, you smell bleach? It's bleach. And it's also like, you're rich enough to have a whole fucking yacht. Aren't you rich enough to get a new mattress? Like, why would you clean a mattress? Like, you're a fucking millionaire, maybe even billionaire, if I'm thinking about your assets. It's like... It's a blood-soaked mattress. Like, Why would you clean it? Throw it in the the river. Yeah. Like, what? Get a new mattress. So, um, Benson starts cutting the mattress, and in terms of, like, what is... um, Not AVM. What's the thing when, like, ASMR? Like, I think cutting of a mattress is ASMR to me. I like the sound of that. Oh, you like that? The ripping... Yeah, or maybe if once one of us gets a new mattress, we should just like for fun rip our mattresses apart with <laughs> knives. Like I, I does I want to know what that feels like, and if it it's as easy as Benson makes it look. Um, and so there is blood inside of the mattress. So they go to arrest his ass for murder, and he is shook. He said, "You are making a very big mistake." And Benson is like, you don't even know how many mistakes you've made. Oh, God. So it's time for court. And of course, he has the slimiest of attorneys, Cindy Lauper's real-life husband, David Thornton, a.k.a. Lionel Granger. And I'll never forget when I posted a photo of Lionel. And I was like, married to Cindy Lauper, oh, my God. And someone goes, that is not his name. And I had to be like, yeah, no, we know. I, I just have an SVU podcast. And then she deleted all her comments. And I was like, <laughs> but I do love someone being such a favorite. Fa- favorite? Where, what is it? Like fervent, such a a fervent David Thornton fan to get so mad at me that I called him Lionel Granger, but didn't know his character name. But like, how dare you? And I was like, you're wrong, bitch. Okay, I'm right. And it's like, if you know his career so well, you know he's Lionel Granger. I know. It was funny. Um, But I love when people are aggressive, then quickly delete. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) But Petrovsky is the judge. Like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me, the stellar group in court? This is, if this was a draft pick of what I needed in court, Mm -hmm. this would be all number ones here. These are all number one draft picks in terms of courtroom scenes and acting skills. So, of course, Cabot wants um, remand, and Lionel is being dramatic, and is like, I'll give you his passport. He's a family man and respected business guy. And it's like, LOL. Um... We can't let him out. He has personal airstrips. Like, he owns private planes and airstrips all over the world. There's no way we're letting him out. And you know how, like, with Josh Payas and Nikki Staines and, like, like, with Pippa Cox, we found their life story. Like, we got to learn about their backstory. I need an episode 
uh, with Lionel Granger. Like, I yeah. need, I want to know more about his life. I need him back on the show and I need a backstory. Well, yeah, because you got to assume if he is a lawyer for like the cartels, like that's, he doesn't need to be defending anyone else. He's getting paid a lot. We don't need to ever see him defending another rapist. Do you know what I mean? Like, and there's a target on his back for sure if he fucks up at all. Like, that's crazy to take on those people as clients. Yeah, if you're listening or casting Sweetheart, I just, I think we need some Granger backstory. <laughs> he goes home and the lawyer's married to Cindy Lauper. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, Granger's like, stop hating on the rich. <laughs> just because he's rich, he's bad. He has a clean record. And Petrovsky goes, okay, shut up. Um, I'm she's, So Petrovsky sets bail at $5 million and wants his passport. Gavel, bang, bang. And Cabot stops Granger and is like, so Zapata still has you on retainer, I see. That explains the $3,000 suit. How'd you get the blood out? And he says, my wife bought me this suit. Okay, who is your wife? <laughs> Again, we'd like the backstory. Who is your wife? He says, um, hey, everyone deserves a defense. And Alex responds, I would believe your idealism if you weren't enjoying yourself so much. And he says, I'm just naturally a happy person. I mean, I love him. I love yeah. him so much. But he pays a dominatrix for sure. <laughs> He then hands her blue papers and is trying to get the search warrant thrown out. And she goes, excuse me? And then he goes, and I will enjoy this. Oh, God, this is the best episode. And uh, now they're in chambers with Petrovsky. And Granger's arguing that he wants to vet the informant and how do we know if it's a credible person? And he's like, just produce the informant and prove what, you know, that he's legit and easy peasy. And Cabot's like, listen, there's a Goggins case and it's the for if it's like for the safety of the informant or to keep the information flowing. We have to keep it a secret. And Lionel's like, yeah, but how do we even know this person exists? And Cabot goes, well, he was accurate. And then they argue about the fibers. Lionel is like, I mean, all we got was location of homicide. What if your informant committed the murder? How about that, Alex? And that's like so fucking annoying. So Petrovsky does order a dart in hearing, um, though, which means like this person meets the judge in secret and if she and she gets to decide if it's like a reliable informant or not. Alex tries to convince Bennetson and Stabler now at the precinct, like, we need this guy. And they go, no, bitch, you're not getting him. No one is going to Chambers. Like, people can get killed. And Cabot's like, who the fuck is this? But they get through and now they're at the DEA offices and Cabot is meeting the hottie. And he's like, did anyone follow you? And she's like, I don't know. And he's stressed out. He's looking at the blinds. He's like, I'm not doing shit for you. The answer is no. And Cabot makes it about her and says, if you don't go, I actually will be held in contempt. And he says, that's your problem. She says, I'm not going to jail for you. And he's like, drop it. And she says she can't. And he's like, when shit goes down, there will be blood on your hands. And she's like, okay, can you calm down? <laughs> but it's also like, mm -hmm. can you not sense the danger? <laughs> this DEA agent is looking out the blinds. Like, shit, <laughs> like I, I just don't understand why everyone's ignoring the severity of the threat of w the Colombian drug cartel. Yeah. <sighs> oh, God. Um... So then he goes, you really don't get this. Like, you don't know anything, do you? And she, and so now she runs to talk to her mentor, Fred Thompson. And he's like, so the detectives put you in this pickle, huh? And she defends her detectives. And he goes, listen, I don't care. I don't need that. We just got to find a way out of this. And she's like, it'll be bing, bang, quick style. Don't worry. And it's like, you can't, again, like, 
everyone is pressed. Even Fred Thompson, everyone is worried. So like, why can't you just kind of get their fear a little bit? (laughs) And she's like, we will make all the efforts to keep it confidential. And Petrovsky knows that too. And then Fred with a burn is like, just because you don't see the threat, you don't think it's real. And she goes, no, I know it's real. And he goes, well, you're not acting like it, honey. And he basically is like, cut the guy a deal. Just cut a deal. So now we're in a little conference room and she is offering Zapata and Granger manslaughter for eight to 10. And he's like, pass. And this is the calm Olympics. Everyone is trying to be as calm as possible. And Alex and Zapata have a calm back and forth exchange. And he's like, this informant is going to keep his mouth shut. And she's like, you don't know who it is. How do you know when that will be. And he responds, so you say. And this is like an eye contact Olympics too. They are calm, (laughs) they are staring at each other and they are, you know, playing big dick games. So Cabot then leans in and says, and tell your client if he intimidates our informant, I will have his bail revoked and his ass thrown back to Rikers. Zapata does not like that one bit. And he says, you can't threaten me, bitch. And badass response, she goes, I just did. Granger is like, okay, well, we're out. And Zapata's not okay with what just happened. He goes, you're going to allow a woman to act like this? And Alex goes, yes, Mr. Zapata. Also, a woman can say anything she wants about your performance in the bedroom, and you don't get to kill her. He leaps up to try to attack her. The table flies around and is her only protection. Alex leaps back. Granger tries to get in the middle and is pushing the table back to keep Zapata on the other side of the table. His hair pieces slide into the front of his terrified face. <laughs> Alex looks scared. People walk in to get him out. There is like the stress and tension in the room is there. You feel it. You see it. You are stressed for everybody. Lionel says, well, that was fun. Let's go, Raphael. And I would be scared if someone looked at me the way Zapata is looking at Alex. Like, this is one scary motherfucker. Yeah, he is scary. And now we're at a walk and talk with Alex and the detectives. See, this is the thing, Annalise. Like, you went and watched 41 Witnesses. Doesn't this make you want to watch this one? Like, I'm like, (laughs) this is... (laughs) Yes. Yes. Okay, yeah. This is, like, so fucking good. And now we're at a walk and talk with Alex and the detectives, and they are discussing all the options. And she's like, yes, I know it's all bad options, and we have to pick one of the bad options. I don't know what to tell you. Um, And it's a cool overhead shot, and it follows them up as they walk um, up the stairs in the middle of the precinct. So it's very great direction. So, of course, I looked it up. And it's a man named Constantine Macris. He has done 26 episodes of SVU, 10 episodes of Orange is the New Black, and a whopping 63 Law & Order OGs, amongst other things. So he's had a very great career in television. Great job, Constantine. I think one of our um, actors that we interviewed mentioned him as well. Yeah, he is talented. Um, Because all the scenes are very hard to direct, I feel like, what they Mm -hmm. did with the boat and the fighting around the table. Like, he, this is a skilled guy. So Alex Cabot's cell phone rings. Fuck ex parte meeting is going down in chambers. Oh, you know how we love an ex parte meeting. I know. I was just thinking in my head, maybe the tattoo I get is ex parte, but no <laughs> one's going to know what that means. Like, I can't <laughs> just get ex parte on my arm. <laughs> but we should do, anyone who has ideas for me that are not basic, do not send me, why don't you get a heart that says Benson? No, that's not yeah, what yeah, I'm getting. Yeah. But ex parte, I think is like, People in the legal profession might be like, "What? Did, why? Why is? Why do you have that? <laughs> What's going on?" It's kind of like with my um, who's the ch- my chip girl? 
Your ch- oh, oh, the Uts girl? The Uts, yeah. Whenever people are like, oh, you're from Maryland? I go, no. They're like, why do you have her? And it's like... I like Uts. I fucking I don't. love Uts. I like the girl. I miss I pick, Uts I picked her chips. off a wall. I go, oh my God, I do love her. Oh, you just like the girl. But do you like the chips? The chips are good. I yeah. mean, I will I will get them because she's on it. And I love, like, the barbecue. She has an orange bow. Like, I like that they color code her outfit to the bag of yes, chips. Yes, yes. Um, but people want more meaning behind it. They're like, oh, Maryland? No, uh, <laughs> not at all. I was just lived near a tattoo shop, and she was cute. And in New York, what's awesome is you saw the trucks all the time. So I would see her, like— Yeah, yeah. But, that um, was, like, my go-to bag of chips at my bodega. I fucking love Uts so much. They're so salty and delicious. And thin. That's good to know. Maybe I'll get you a big cheese puff thing for a birthday. Oh, <laughs> a big bin. Um, so, but yeah, so I can't just get ra- random legal. Like, what do I get? An I love Petrovsky? Like, that seems yeah. fucked up too. <laughs> Maybe I do just get a Petrovsky tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> She'll cool. definitely do the pod then if we send her a picture. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so she is, or fishing expedition. Like, do I get a fishing hook that says fishing expedition? Like, I don't know. Are you going to get like iced tea with a shark body or something like that? (laughs) What was that idea? I don't don't know. (laughs) Um, so she's, but Alex is scared about this ex parte meeting and she knows like, this isn't good. This is some, this isn't good. So in the meeting, there's the DEA and the DOJ. And it's a lot of, you know, whites and ties. And so the Department (laughs) of Justice guy has been in four total SVU episodes and all different characters. And I think he's the guy that is Miranda Priestley's husband. Or no, he's the head of Vogue Publishing in Devil Wears Prada. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's who this guy is. yep. Um, the husband's in a different SVU. Okay, so, <laughs> so the DOJ guy, um, he hands Alex a document stating that Petrovsky is barred from subpoenaing a federal agent because it would fuck with an ongoing investigation and nothing can be done. The search is out. Nobody is happy. And Petrovsky is going to take it out on Mr. Riley from the DOJ and says, and I never want to see this many lawyers in my chambers again. So next time, leave the dog and pony show at home. He says he understands. Everyone leaves. And now it's a state's rights issue and Alex and the detectives are bitching in the hallways and the hottie DEA arrives with bad, bad news. There's the threat. They're like, who gives a shit? And no, the threat's against you, Cabot. And we need to protect Cabot at all costs. And so they're now in an office listening to a rape recorder. Oh, tape recorder. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think Google Docs just changed it because I read about rape? She probably meant rape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That stays in. That stays in for sure. And they're, uh, yeah, so they're listening to a tape recorder and it's inmates and they're chatting and this only happened like six hours ago and they confirm Cabot's address. They know where she lives. They know when she gets home. They know when she jogs. They know her mother's address. And she's like, how do they know this? And it's like, we've been warning you. You're in danger, girl. Like everyone's been warning you all fucking night. And again, he's like, have you noticed people following you or taping your shit? And Benson's like, well, obviously protective detail now, armed guards. There's federal marshals on her at all times. Security is high, home, office, everywhere. But Cabot's pulling a Benson being being like, no, I want to go home now. Shut up. So the DEA hottie goes out and says, don't worry, we'll find this guy and we'll put him away. And they have chemistry. 
Mm. Okay. There yeah. are fireworks. I they, feel it. It is. It's hot. And he's like, don't worry. If I have to, I will testify in open court. And then, um, yeah, everyone. So basically, he's like, you're hot. I'll jeopardize my life. I know I said I cared, but I'll die for you. And it's like, yeah, if this was a rom-com, they would be making out. So, and then I'm like assuming he would be cheating on his wife, but I don't know why I'm assuming he's married, but whatever. I think because you've watched the episode and we find out later that he is. No, I... They, he only says he has kids at the end. Oh, that's true. Right? No, because I saw, I thought the same thing. And I assumed. Then, exactly. This yeah. is what happened to me in Pittsburgh. I kept going, so you guys have kids? And the, one of them would be like, that, they're her kids. The, uh-uh, that's his kids. <laughs> like, all these people with kids date. We forget everyone gets divorced or, like, aren't with their partners. And, like, even though we're cool and we know everyone living different lives and respect it all, like, it's still, like, it's so ingrained. heteronormative in my head. Because... Yeah. I was like, yep, cheating on his wife. And then I heard it later and it was like, oh yeah, he just has kids later. So, you know, maybe he wasn't cheating and he was looking for a stepmom. And, you know, we'll see. Could have been Cabot. Could have been. So after this like sexual moment, he goes to the car and the three, Benson, Stabler, Cabot are chatting and Benson suggests a sleepover. Then boom, DEA guy's car fully explodes. Fire, he's dead. Fuck right when we started to like him. Finally, they realize, wow, this is serious. <laughs> yeah, finally. So there's a commercial break, obviously. A man just got car exploded. Um, and we're back from the break in a bustling crime scene. And they zoom in on Alex's cut-up, stressed-out face. And she's wrapped in a blanket. And you know there's trauma when someone's wrapped in a blanket. So Benson is uh, pepping her up like, you couldn't have done anything differently. And it's like, you could have. You could have. <laughs> um, and then it's like, oh, no, the DEA, the not hot one, the best friend, um, he approaches Alex and he's so pissed and he's just like an exasperated, how? And she says, I don't know. And this is not a good enough answer for him. And he goes, are you kidding me? He had two kids. Did you know that? So that's really sad. Um, Benson says, knock it off. And he does not knock it off. He goes, you were careless. You wouldn't listen. Well, do you get it now? And Stabler says, enough. And Stabler then turns to Alex and says, we're taking you off this case. And the DEA guy is like, you have no case. It blew up with Donovan and walks away. And he's obviously grieving, like he's pissed. So I, I excuse all of his behavior. And I think Alex Cabot deserves being yelled at. Sorry. But, like, also, if you're DEA and you're working against these guys, don't you have to have, like, a bomb-sniffing dog check out your car every fucking time you get in it or something? Like, th- this is their main thing. They love to blow up fucking cars. <laughs> like, I would never be able to get in my car and turn the key if I was this guy- these guys. Yeah. Oh, uh, and we know Alex Cabot, though. So, like, we know she's not going to step down. She fucking went to the Congo. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> uh, like we're going to get this guy's ass. So we're back at the precinct, and it's all hands on deck figuring out, how you know, what are we going to do next? Alex says, how do they know Donovan was connected? And it's like, well, you were at his office? So what are yeah. you talking about? Munch says they have money and power. That's all you really need to do anything. And, of course, Alex says she's not backing down and has protection, and it's chill. And Benson's like, Alex, you don't have to die for this case. She goes, no, these men live off of other people's fear and I'm sick of it. Um, And I noticed that she had pearl stud earrings. Cute. 
<laughs> Intimidation is always there, whether it's me or the next person in the office. And they agree with her and they go, okay, let's get to work and let's drag everyone from the boat in because someone knows something. And Cragen asks to speak to her privately. And in the office, he's like, I know you wouldn't let this die. So he gives her his old gun and got her a permit, like rushed for the gun. So then Cragen gets a call and he tells Cabot, the boss is looking for you. So we go back to Fred's and he's drinking a brown liquor. He starts going down memory lane about cops being killed daily by Pablo, 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 by Pablo Escobar and how a bunch of former judges, prosecutors, and law enforcement people walking around every day with armed guards to this day. Is this true? We'll find out from Kara. But um, to imagine like a job you did 30 years ago and you still have, need protection every single day and how much money and witness protection goes into like this drug trade that the American government benefits from, I'm betting. I don't... God, I hate everything. Legalize drugs. Legalize all drugs. All of them. Like, what are we talking about? So yeah, so like the rest of their lives is truly on edge forever because they stood up to the cartel who only cares about keeping their business afloat. And she says, that's why we got to fight them. And he's like, girl, we've been fighting them since before you were born and we're dropping the case. The feds have a better case against him than we would ever have. So give it to them. There's too many people who have already died. And she's sad about this, but they understand. So they're back at trial and the case is dropped. So Granger and Zapata seem very, very proud. And Zapata slowly walks out of the courtroom as the U.S. Marshals come in to arrest him. And he is being charged with the murder of a federal agent. He gives dirty looks to Alex while he's slowly being walked away in cuffs. The FBI connected Zapata to the car bomb who then gave up Cesar Velez, which doesn't seem realistic. I can't imagine Zapata giving up Velez. Like, I what? You guys work together on how to kill every rat ever. Like, yeah. why would you give why would you give up the main boss? This seems shocking to me. But I guess he does think he has so many assets that he could be able to get away. But like I this this is where the show I don't uh I don't You're know. dead if you do that. Like you're dead. You do you would give up somebody underneath you or something. Or like why wouldn't you just stay in prison and get I just I don't understand I at all. Um so anyways, but if this all goes down the way they hope, um they can arrest Velez and begin extradition processes. And so Alex asks, what does Zapata get for his troubles? Reduce sentence and a new identity, Finn guesses. Munch and Finn leave and then Craig and our threesome is left with a pretty full pitcher of beer. So they're at a bar. We had a good run, Stabler says. And like, we had to get screwed sometime. It happens. And Benson adds, Velez can do more damage to Zapata now than the justice system ever could. So even Benson's like, don't worry. <laughs> Velez is going to kill this motherfucker. <laughs> And, you know, Alex is getting all existential and she's just like, it never seems like enough. She's sick of what happens with the victims. And even when we win, we don't. And they all leave the bar. And she's like, I'll walk. And it's like, you you cannot walk. Does the trauma leave you this fast? Um, and then, oh no, a black SUV comes and shoots Cabot. Bang, bang. She's knocked the fuck out, out cold. Stabler tries to run after the SUV. It does not work. Benson's like, okay, it's okay. Alex, you'll be okay. And blood is rushing out of Alex Cabot. It is not looking good. Nobody called a bus though. So that's not by the book. Now it's October 1st and we're at the squad room and they're all so sad. Munch is not talking. Strange. Everyone's on the verge of tears. Finn head is in his hands. Stabler is staring off and then it pans down to what he's looking at and it's the New York ledger and it says no leads on slain ADA and it's a giant pick of Cabot. 
Cragen walks out of his office and is just talking straight business about other cases and bitching about other ADAs sucking at their jobs. Cragen says Zapata was found dead in a cell, but also, yeah, duh. So there goes Velez's extradition and all of this, like, what the fuck? I guess Zapata's dead and that is justice in some way, but this is tough stuff. Then Cragen tells Benson and Stabler that DEA agent Hannah, the not hot one, wants to see them tonight. Um, Something about closing out the case. So they meet in a marsh, like, rocky secret area. And he's like, sorry, it's the only way to do this. And Benson's like, do what? And the DEA guy responds, she wouldn't take no for an answer. A real pain in the ass, this one. And out of the black SUV is Cabot. She's alive (gasps) in a ponytail. Oh, it's so good. She says, I'm sorry about all of this. And Benson starts crying. Oh my God, she's such a good actress. And she mutters, your funeral is tomorrow. And the DEA guy says, yes, and you're both expected to be there. And she is going to win into witness protection until Velez is extradited or dealt with in some other way. And they don't know for how long and they're just like on the move. She has a sling on her arm. Um, and so it was a real blood and it was a real shooting that she had survived. Because I think all along I did think this was a fake shooting. And like, how did they plan this fake shooting? But I think she was shot. They just didn't kill her. Yeah. And so she could have been dead. So that's like... Thank God she's alive. Um, but would she, whatever, they would have shot her more times. But they saved her. She did bleed. She has a sling. And now it closes on Benson and Stabler's faces, like as they take in all the information and all the SUVs move with Cabot going into witness protection. Damn. And she goes to fucking Wisconsin. Well, thank you, Lisa. That was a recap of a classic, and we will be right back with the true crime of it all. All right, Kara. I'm so excited. I actually don't know anything about, like, I know they're bad, but this, I've seen the movie Blow. Famously, yeah. I gave my first blowjob during that movie. Um, <laughs> so on the nose. So on the nose. <laughs> and then his sister walked in on us. But I I stay away from this genre of filmmaking. Yeah, Scarface maybe I've seen, but like I stay away from this genre. So I'm really, thank you for doing the research. I really didn't want to. So thank yeah, you. Yeah, no, that's fine. Yeah, I definitely am the same. Like this episode is, of course, if you haven't figured it out, is based on Pablo Escobar and the Colombian cartels. And I've, like I said, I've obviously heard of Escobar. Who hasn't? But I don't watch Narcos. Like, I don't know the whole story. So I was happy to actually kind of dig into this and learn a little bit more about him. Um, Because I didn't even know if he was still alive or not. But he was a Colombian drug kingpin known as the King of Cocaine, who was the founder and leader of the Medellin cartel. So Medellin is a city in Colombia and also the subject of a movie that Vinny Chase tries to make and then eventually stars in an entourage that bombs. Um, So if you've heard that before and you're like a person that watched Entourage, that's that. Um, So Escobar 
was raised in Medellin, one of uh, seven kids, and started his cr- uh, criminal career as a teen. It's conflicting. Like, some people said he used, he used to steal gravestones and then, like, sand down the names and resell them. Others said he was selling faked high school diplomas. I think both are pretty funny starting gigs for a criminal. Um, he also sold cigarettes, fake lottery tickets, etc. And he gained some attention in, quote-unquote, the Marlboro Wars, which um, I guess he played a high-profile role in the control of Colombia's smuggled cigarette market. So this was probably future practice for his illegal drug enterprises. And uh, he eventually became like a bodyguard and a thief, like he'd kidnap people for ransom. And then eventually he got into the drug trade and he did become, I think still today, the wealthiest criminal of all time. Like he amassed $30 billion in, in his time, which is equivalent to $64 billion today. So pretty lucrative work for him. So he's described as a drug lord and a narco-terrorist. And um, when I looked up narco-terrorist, it does have its own... Narco-terrorism has its own Wikipedia page. So originally, that was defined as narcotics traffickers um, who try to influence the policies of a government or a society through violence and intimidation and to hinder the enforcement of anti-drug laws by the systematic threat or use of such violence. But apparently the term is increasingly being used for terrorist organizations that engage in like drug traffic activity to um, fund their operations and gain recruits and expertise. So like if Al-Qaeda or you know um, any of these organizations run drugs, that might not necessarily be their thing. Like, their main thing because they have other, you know what I mean? Like they have other pursuits, but drugs is just like a a revenue stream for them. Um, but then I was reading this article in ProPublica, like very in-depth as they always are, that talks about how narco-terrorism term is kind of tricky nowadays because sometimes the DEA uses it to like stage threats. Like they'll be like, oh, this is narco-terrorism. And it's like, no, these guys were just trying to make some money and like they're Muslim or something like that. You know, it's like not, it's not necessarily, it's it's more of the war on drugs shit. It's like they're using it to cover up war on drugs stuff so they can always call things narco-terrorism when it's um, really kind of just narcotics trafficking uh, in a lot of ways. So Uh, Who knows? You can get more into that. The ProPublica article is uh, linked in our show notes. So back to Pablo. The New York Times said that Escobar rose from the Colombian slums to become this huge drug lord, like this rags to riches story. But everywhere else, I read that he was kind of middle class. Like his dad was a farmer. His mom was a teacher. Like they weren't, he didn't live like on the streets, but like he was... Um, always wanted more. Like, he wanted more than what his parents had. So he started his business smuggling cocaine via airplane in into the U.S. around 1975. And then his cartel was founded in 1976. So he was around 26 or 27. And that same year is when he married his wife, a 15-year-old, hello, SVU, named uh, Maria Victoria Henao. And um, they eventually had a son and a daughter, Juan Pablo and Manuela, and Juan Pablo now goes by Sebastian Marroquin and is a motivational speaker, which I do um, love. And so, um, by the way, I do have a friend who married a guy who was Colombian whose name was Pablo Escobar when he was born, and then later his name was changed. <laughs> so he has a different name now. Um, but I just think that's very funny. And their wedding was in Colombia, and I loved it. It was beautiful. So in May of 1976... Escobar and several of his men were arrested and found in possession of 18 kilos of white paste. Uh, That's about 39 pounds. And that's a coca paste that was usually purchased in Bolivia, Peru, or Ecuador, and then smuggled into the U.S. Escobar attempted to bribe the judges who were building a case, but it didn't work. And then after months of legal back and forth, Escobar just 
got the two arresting officers murdered and the case was later dropped. So he found out pretty quickly that this was like a effective way of getting business done. It's just like killing everyone that has to do with prosecuting you. And so, yeah, that start, that's sort of the start of his pattern of dealing with authorities through bribery or murder. So around this time, you know, late 70s, early 80s, Cocaine demand in the U.S. is skyrocketing. Like, everyone wants it. Um, So he starts organizing more smuggling shipments, routes, distribution networks in South Florida, California, Puerto Rico, other parts of the U.S. Um, And then eventually him and, I guess, a co-founder of the cartel named Carlos Lader um, worked together to develop this new like shipment point for themselves in the Bahamas. And it's an island called Norman's Cay around... um, 220 miles southeast of Florida. Sometimes I think C-A-Y is supposed to be pronounced key, but I don't know. And so they had this little island in the Bahamas that had an airstrip, a harbor, a hotel, houses, boats, aircrafts, and they had a huge refrigerated warehouse used to store the cocaine. So pretty big operation going on. So from 78 to 82, uh, Norman's K was the central smuggling route for the Medellin cartel. And, um, Eventually, he was able to purchase 7.7 square miles of land in Antioquia, which is where Medellin is. It's like the, it seems like it's the county or something where Medellin is in Colombia. And that is where he built Hacienda um, Napolis, which is basically his Playboy mansion. It's this huge luxury house with a sculpture garden that had like huge life size dinosaurs in it a private bullring, an airport, swimming pools, lush lawns, man-made lakes, and a private zoo that had exotic birds, horses, elephants, rhinos, and hippos. And maybe you guys have noticed a story from the end of last year about uh, Pablo Escobar's cocaine hippos. This is definitely straight out of the Bananas podcast. Um, Essentially, what happened was the hippos were illegally brought in by Escobar. Then after he died, sorry, spoiler alert, he does die, um, the hippos are just left in the zoo to like fend for themselves. And they make their way down to the Magdalena um, River Basin, which is a huge waterway that cuts through the western part of Colombia. And then they just start spreading in population. They just keep breeding. And as the population grows, Colombia claims, oh, this is threatening the biodiversity of the area and could lead to dangerous encounters with human beings because hippos are actually, they seem cute and like they're just hungry for pellets in a game, but actually they are very, um, very aggressive. And uh, so Colombia was like, well, we want to either kill these hippos or sterilize them. So, of course, the United States jumps in and is like, no, and they sue for the hippos to obtain personhood, and they it is granted. So, in the United States, these hippos are considered people. And what I was reading in the article is like, yeah, but Colombia doesn't have to listen to us. Like, so it's like a gesture that, oh, these animals are people. Like, in our country, we, we think they're people. Please don't kill them. And Colombia's like... Yeah, but it's our country, so we're going to do whatever we want. So I believe that they began that they began to start sterilizing the hippos. Hopefully, no hippos were killed. But um, anyway, they're called the cocaine hippos. I think people think it's like hippos ripping lines of cocaine and flying around town. No, but it's just, I definitely um, thought it was a bunch of hippos that were on coke. Yeah, 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 yeah. They're just called the cocaine hippos because I think that's how they were paid for, and like they're Escobar's hippos. So anyway, hopefully they are just you know barren and living in Colombia, having happy lives. Uh, but Hacienda Napoles is where Escobar sort of stunted on his fortune. It's where he showed off all his wealth. He had huge classic car collection, bikes, a go-kart racetrack, etc. But his pride and joy was this replica 
of a Piper PA-18 Super Cub airplane, which was the small plane that transported his very first shipment of cocaine to the U.S. So he has a replica of baby's first airplane up there. Baby's first coke airplane. sentimental guy. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So today, wildly, Hacienda Napoles is a family-friendly theme park with water attractions and a wildlife sanctuary, a butterfly farm, museum. So go check it out. And many people definitely were brutally murdered there. So sounds fun. Um, But back to his crimes... It is alleged that Escobar backed the 1985 storming of the Colombian Supreme Court by left-wing guerrillas from the 19th of April movement, also known as M-19. This siege resulted in the murders of half the judges on the court, and hostages were also taken for negotiation. These judges were basically trying to set up extradition policies with the U.S. so that Colombian, you know— drug dealers could be extradited to the U.S. for punishment. And obviously, Escobar, no likey that idea. So let's just kill a bunch of the judges. So a bunch of these guys from M19, this M19 group, were paid to break into the palace, burn all the papers and files involving Los Extraditables, which is a group of cocaine smugglers who are under threat of being extradited to the U.S. So they have like a list of them. And he's like, just go in there and burn the list. And obviously, duh, Escobar's on the list. So they killed all these judges, and it's like this huge, like, event in, you know, Colombia's history. So at the height of the cartel's operation, uh, the cartel was bringing in $70 million a day, which today would be $150 million a day. So crazy. And 15 tons of coke were being smuggled daily. It's just not even that good of a drug. Like, that is what's shocking to me. Like, all other drugs are so fun. Well, not all. I don't know. But, like, Coke just sucks to me. I've never had fun on Coke. It's I never agree been something completely. I want. So I'm just I think confused. That, I think it affects people differently because I have friends that are like, I'm having the best time when they're on Coke and it just does not do it for me. I'm like, okay, now it's 7 a.m. and I'm awake and I'm listening to somebody randomly go on and on about like, Quentin Tarantino, this is not fun for me, you know? Yeah, and it's just this drip and it doesn't taste, it's just like, I've never understood and it's like, how many tons? 15 tons a day. Like, the numbers are wild. But his brother, Roberto, was his accountant and later wrote a book chronicling his time in the cartel. And there's some fun info in the book. Like, they also spent $1,000 a week on rubber bands just to wrap the stacks of cash. Like, can you imagine, like, that much money on rubber bands? And then they also had to write off a percentage of the cash, like, in their books because the cash would be get eaten by rats. Like, rats would eat some of the money and they'd be like, well, okay, 10% just gone to rat food. So anyway... As um, Escobar's fortune and fame grew, you know, he really wanted to be seen as a leader. And so he set himself, he tried to set himself up as like a Robin Hood figure where he was like, I'm rags to riches. I'm here to help the poor. And a lot of people bought into it. A lot of the poor people of Colombia were like, yeah, he's doing good things. Like he, you know, he spent money to expand social programs. He was very good at PR. So he would like build football fields and sports courts and like sponsor kids teams and stuff. And then he would distribute money throughout like housing projects and apparently other civic engagements where he would help, you know, the downtrodden. So civilians often would help him. Like people loved him. Civilians would serve as lookouts and hide info from authorities just to help him. And uh, it's wild because... the violence was kind of destroying Colombia. I mean, the cartels, 
in their fight with the, amongst each other to, because there's another cartel called the Cali cartel and the cartels are always struggling for who's going to be the top dog. It resulted in a lot of um, violence and Colombia quickly becoming the world's murder capital. Um, in 91, they had more than 25,000 violent deaths in the country. And in 92, it was over 27,000. So the increased murder rate was um, also fueled by Escobar just giving money to his hitmen to, um, as rewards for killing police officers. So he killed, apparently he was responsible for the deaths of over 100, I'm sorry, over 600 police officers um, that he, you know, was just like giving bonuses out to his guys if they killed cops. Yeah, because also like I do like that he was helping the poor and building all these things, but what goes through my head is like then does he lord it over people to do weird favors or it's like, well, you took this money and now you have to do this for me right. or murder your whole family. Like, I, I still don't trust him fully. I don't right. know. But maybe he is a hero and I just don't know about it. Well, but it's also like, remember the episode we just did? Oh, well, we just did this on one of our live shows in Wet where there's like Cola Now is like buying all these gymnasiums and it's like, yeah, because you don't want people to pay attention to the fact that you're selling soda that's like turning kids obese. You know, it's like, it's PR. I don't know if he's doing it out of the goodness of his heart. You know, maybe he's doing it so he has like a lot of civilian lookouts. Who knows? But, you know, this man is personally responsible for killing thousands of people, including police, judges, etc. So he's a very, very scary person. And to pull right from the episode where they say that line, these guys would, you know, bomb a jetliner just to get rid of one person. One of Escobar's main hitmen did exactly that. One of his top assassins blew up a commercial airliner um, because he thought two informants were on board. It was 29-year-old Dandeni Munoz Mosquera, and he was one of the top assassins for the cartel. He reputedly killed 50 police officers, judges, and other officials in his career, which launched when he was 12 years old. He blew up an Avianca jetliner over Bogota in 1989. All 107 people on board died, including two U.S. citizens. Um, and this is considered one of the worst acts of drug trade terrorism. So then later, a man named Luis Carlos Galan, who was running for president on a pro-extradition and anti-cartel platform, like this is a guy who's running for president of Colombia and who's like, I'm going to get you. Like you, the, we will no longer be overrun by cartel. He was way ahead in the polls, like probably was going to win, was assassinated, obviously. And after that happened, the government really wanted to go for Escobar and his cartel. So he was supposed to surrender and cease all criminal activity in exchange for a reduced sentence and preferential treatment during his captivity. So he did surrender in 1991, Escobar. And he was combined to his own luxurious private prison called La Catedral, which was featured um, a football field, a giant dollhouse. I don't know, a bar, a jacuzzi, and a waterfall. I don't even understand how this is considered a jail but or a prison, but that's where he was, where he was housed. And of course, he fully kept running his business from jail. So when the government found out and tried to, about like the fact that he's living it up even, even more than like Martha Stewart or some of our white collar criminals, the government tries to move him. And of course, he finds out in advance because he's got everybody on the inside and he escapes jail. And then he spends the rest of his life avoiding capture. And um, that turns out to be 16 months. Uh, so eventually the United States Joint Special Operations Command, which is members of SEAL Team 6, Delta Force, and then 
Centra Spike. It's like all these people joined the manhunt for Escobar. They trained and advised this special Colombian task force that was called um, Search Block that was created to find Escobar. Um, and so they were all trained to try to find Escobar. And as all this is going on, Escobar's enemies are ganging together and they form a group called Los Pepes. And that group is financed by his rivals and former associates, including other cartels. And the Los Pepes fueled by vengeance, goes on a spree in which 300 of Escobar's associates, his lawyer, relatives of his, hitmen in his cartel, all these people are murdered and a bunch of the Medellin cartel's property was destroyed. So, you know, things are not looking good for him in the early 90s. And then on December 2nd, 1993, 16 months after he escaped from his (laughs) fancy prison, Escobar died in a shootout And um, his actual fatal wound was a gunshot through the ear. And his brothers maintained that he took his own life and that he did not die. Because no one has taken credit for firing the shot that killed him, probably for fear of retaliation. But also, maybe they just... I don't know who, maybe they don't know, but he, they, these brothers are like, well, no one took credit, so he, we think he killed himself because that's more honorable in their eyes than he got killed by the authorities. I don't know. So after his death, the cocaine market was taken over by a rival cartel called the Cali Cartel until the 90s, mid-90s, when its leaders were either killed or captured by the Colombian government. And a lot of people do remember the Robin Hood thing about Escobar, especially poor people. He was deeply mourned by people and over 25,000 people went to his funeral. That's pretty huge. So um, a lot of these people think that he was a saint and they pray to him for receiving divine help. Uh, Meanwhile, his wife uh, and his two kids fled Colombia after no one would grant them asylum. And after they went to Mozambique, then Brazil, they finally settled in Argentina. And then this like reminded me of like a reality show that I'd love to see. His widow became a successful real estate entrepreneur until one of her business associates discovered who she was. And so she booked it out of there with all of her money. But then eventually she was imprisoned for 18 months while her finances were investigated in Argentina, but they couldn't link to anything illegal. So she was let go. And she continues to live in Buenos Aires with her son and daughter. Um, Her son and daughter have also both denounced their father's activities and, you know, like the, the son changed his name. Uh, the wife, it's very interesting because... This actually just came to me as we were doing the recap. Like, you know how he says, you're going to let a woman talk to me that way? Like, obviously, misogyny is rampant in the cartels and in this this, uh, gangster culture. But this wife, Maria of Escobar, like, she married him when she was 15. He had countless affairs. He was constantly cheating. She stood by his side. She spoke to him with nothing but respect. She was, like, constantly, like... and she was considered the model for all the, the the cartel wives. Like, all of them, it was like, look at Maria. Like, look how she never talks back. Look at how she stands by him, blah, blah, blah. So just an interesting, you know, look at how women are, were, are treated in these situations. Because I think sometimes we see in these TV shows, you know, the women can say, oh, your dick doesn't work. Or the women can, like, get away with saying more shit. But um, it seems like her way to stay alive was to just never, ever talk back and to be a dutiful wife. And so um, I did read that she stayed in Buenos Aires with her son and daughter and that in June of 2018, a federal judge in Argentina accused her and her son, Sebastian Marroquin, of money laundering with Colombian drug traffickers, which would be wild if they were like openly denouncing 
Pablo's shit, but then they were back in bed. But I mean, maybe that's also how they needed to survive because they don't have a skill set after living in the in a cartel life forever. But I looked everywhere. This was widely reported in 2018. There is like no update. Like I have to assume that this was just dropped because there's no update. I was checking the internet everywhere for like, what happened with this case with Maria and Sebastian? And like, nothing is there. So, um, you know, I found some articles about how Hollywood is obsessed with... Pablo Escobar and everything about cartels and his brother, actually, Roberto, the one who was the um, accountant for the family, he did contact Netflix to try to become a consultant on the show Narcos. I don't think Netflix took him up on it. He did feel like season one had a lot of mistakes in it. He's also um, partially blind and deaf from a letter bomb exploding in his face. So he's lived a life. And... um, Yeah, so obviously Pablo Escobar died in 1993, but many, many movies and TV shows have been based on him. His influence lives on. I think we all remember uh, a few years ago when El Chapo was the rage. He was a Mexican cocaine kingpin, and he was obsessed with Escobar. Like, that was his, you know, Michael Jordan. So, you know, people with sort of shark eye, no souls, can really get behind everything Pablo Escobar was doing. But the brutality and the violence. It's like, I, it's like, it's weird that Cabot, none of that would have registered for her because clearly like the Velez character is supposed to be Escobar, you know? And it's like, I don't know, you should be scared, a little bit more scared because they are fully blowing up planes. But I think now I did go to Columbia in 2015 and it was one of the best trips I've ever been on. I remember when I lived in New York, Columbia was doing a lot of advertising on the subway. I think they're really trying to get away from their image as like a cocaine cartel riddled place because like my friend's husband is from Bogota. They go all the time. They say it's so beautiful. I went to Cartagena. The housewives went to Cartagena. I mean, you know, it's beautiful. So go to Columbia. It's okay now. And definitely go to that. <laughs> definitely go to that water park that used to be his fucking like murder mansion. And um, tell me how There's it was. There's got to be some listeners that have gone. Please tag us in your vacation photos if you've yeah. ever been there. <laughs> yeah, because it's like when you go to Instagram, like or you look it up. There's there's like pictures of it. You know, people there. So anyway, that's all she wrote on Pablo Escobar. Thank you for that. Loved that rundown. Loved being informed. And now we have an iconic guest. You guys are going to lose it. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I've been dreaming of the day that I get to do this introduction of a guest. And here it is, you guys. You know this actor very intimately. You have seen her recently on Ava DuVernay's superhero drama, Naomi, on The CW. Or maybe you've seen her playing Ivanka Trump on a president show documentary, The Fall of Donald Trump. But you definitely know her in your heart as one of the best ADAs of all time, Alex Cabot. Guys, I, I don't I don't know what else to say. We're, we're about to talk to Stephanie March. You've been on our wish list uh, since <laughs> before we even started. Um, iconic character, iconic role, and one of the best episodes ever. But I guess we'll just start with how. what's the origin story of nailing this part and getting cast on SVU? You know, I don't, I don't know that you ever think you nail the part. I, I, that's a good question. Uh, the other day, my friend, who her name is Becca Perkins, she's my business partner, and she happens to be, I met her on the set because she's the head makeup artist at, at uh, SVU, and now she's running organized crime. 
Oh, but wow. uh, she sent me a picture of a mask that a lot of people were wearing that she had seen around town. And it was kind of iconic law and order characters. And it was, you know, Benson and Stabler and Wong and Munch. And then, and then Cabot was on there. And I thought, oh my God, I, I made the mask. You know, I'm one of the sticks on the mask. That must be good. That's, that's, I guess that's good. You know, I got this part, like truly the old fashioned way. I auditioned off the street, you know, with the, you know, with my agent fresh in New York and I auditioned in front of Dick Wolf and he said, yep, let's move you ahead to the studio. And then I, I don't know how well received I was at the studio end, but I, Dick was definitely my champion and he definitely had the power to hire me and he did. And, and that's how I got the job. Wow. Amazing. You and Ice-T just joining in season two. Were you guys buddies as like the newbies? And it was so early in the show's history. Did you guys know it was going to be this iconic and that we'd all be obsessed for years to come? I did not. You know, at the time, television was very different, of course. And the standard contract that you signed was seven years. And I told my agent, I said, I cannot find, you know, remember, I'm fresh out of the theater. I'm fresh out of college. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to, first, I'm going to be Lady Macbeth. Then I'm going to do this show. Then I'm going to do something else. I'm going to start a theater company. And then I'm going to start in this movie. You know, you have all these plans. And I said, I can't be on a television show for seven years. And my agent said, Stephanie, there's no show that runs for seven years. Don't worry. <laughs> um, so that, that turned out to be the one case where that's not true. And uh, I remember Dick Wolf saying to me about Ice-T, he said, he is the best negotiator we have ever negotiated with. Tougher and smarter than any agent. Wow. That's cool. He's so great. Wow, that's great info. Oh, he's so, he he should have a class, he should have a seminar for every senior in college called Real Fucking Life. Like that's (laughs) what it should be called. Well, he does on Twitter a little bit. You know, he has his ice cold facts. (laughs) I, he walked, I remember him saying in the makeup room, I was, I was in there, and he just, it was one of the times I had come back. And he said, man, I don't know what's happened to you, but if you're 50 and you haven't gotten over it, now it's your problem. <laughs> I was like, okay, I guess that's it. I guess 50 is the age at which you can't complain about your childhood anymore. It's on you. But I've remembered it. Agreed. He's smart. Wow. And you mentioned um, makeup and head of makeup, and we are constantly like obsessed with the wardrobe and the makeup. What was your relationship like with the crew, the writers, makeup, hair, any kind of like behind the scenes people? Because I'm sure you work so closely with a lot of them. I loved the crew and I loved the cast. I will say we were constantly at uh, secretly with hair and makeup at odds with production because you're always trying to be just slightly more glamorous or slightly more fun. And I, you know, I watched the episode Lost last night. I haven't seen it. You guys, I cannot watch myself on TV. I haven't seen it in probably, I don't know, 15 years. So I kind of gasped when I was watching it. And part of me gasped because of the tragic bangs situation. (laughs) And the other part of me gasped because I'm wearing like a lavender top, you know, for part of it. And that was such a thing. No color. She's dressed for work. I always had to wear pantyhose. I wasn't allowed to wear pants until well into season three. I mean, <sighs> it was so conservative. And you know, I was 24, 25 years old yeah, and I had to move to New young. York. And I wanted like I wanted to be all fashionable, right? And they just they just they were like, Nope, you're an ADA working working for the man in New York City. That's not how it's gonna go. So we tried red lipstick once and decided basically completely color corrected it and told us never to do it again. <laughs> 
Yeah, we were wondering about the bangs. I was like, I wonder if the bangs was a Stephanie call or a uh, hair and makeup call. Oh, that was a that was a Stephanie call. I can't put that on hair and makeup. That was one hundred percent me. And I look at it and I just think, you know, it's not that bangs were bad because it can be great, but those were bad. Those were very bad. And uh, when I met Dan, my husband, he said, "Yeah, I saw some pictures of you, and I, I just think, are you ever going to get bangs again? <laughs> Why do you ask?" He said, well, "You look great now." And I was like, "Is that your way of saying you hate them?" He said, "Yes." <laughs> That's my way of saying I hate them. Hey, that kind of honesty is worth its weight. <laughs> Presented correctly. Yes. <laughs> well, I'm so glad you watched that episode because it's incredible. The scenes with you, um, I, Lionel Granger and Petrovsky, the three of you in chambers oh. and talking is like a masterclass in acting. And with you and Granger and Zapata, like those scenes are so good. Do you remember shooting those and being yeah. like, oh, we're amazing? I don't know. And and we love Working, Granger and Petrovsky well, so much. Exactly. First <laughs> of all, David and Joanna are two of the best actors. And I say that because you never see them acting. You always think they are that person. Yeah. I and mean, she's Judge Petrovsky. No question. And he's Lionel Granger. Like, <sighs> no question. Also, they're two of the most pleasant people to work with. They're just very delightful, smart, interesting intelligent people. And I remember David saying to me, I, and we were just, you know, waiting for them to set up between scenes. And I looked at his hand. I said, Oh, you know, you mentioned earlier in some of the show, your character's married, but you're not wearing a wedding ring. Did they forget? And he said, no, no. I think Lionel Granger's that kind of guy. He just is the kind of guy who's married, but doesn't wear a ring. Yeah. Oh, he shouldn't have to. <laughs> and I so thought, good. Oh my God, that's exactly right. Like it's <laughs> that attention to detail that makes it so so fun to play with, right? Yeah. And do you remember being scared? I mean, Zapata jumping over that table, I was, I mean, you just, it was like such a scary scene. He's the nicest guy. <laughs> He's the nicest actor in the world. But that man moves fast. And so what's great, you don't have to do very many takes, right? You know, if you get it, if you get it right on the first time, it's hard to be surprised over and over. So uh, rather fortunately, I think, I think we got it. Yeah, yeah, I was wondering if maybe there was like improv involved because you truly look so terrified when he comes at you in that scene that I was like, I wonder if he kind of jumped a line and just went at her or something because, I don't know, you just really look genuinely terrified. I don't see the acting there. I would say we choreographed it only because you sort of have to with moving furniture because right. you don't want to hit, you know, we can't, you don't want to hit the crew, you don't want to hit an actor, you don't, you know, uh, you don't want to ruin the take by bumping into a light. But um, it was also really late at night, as I recall, and we were all tired. And I just, you know, I, uh, those hours were really long. And I think he just surprised the hell out of me. Yeah. We just got lucky. Also, I'm just, you know, a genius. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, outside of Dave, you uh, got to work with so many defense attorneys, judges. Was there anyone on the call sheet you'd see and you'd be like, oh, today's going to be extra fun or I can't wait to show down with them in court? Um, were there, uh, yeah, any faves? So the late Ned Eisenberg, who yes. I oh. absolutely adore. I, Ned is so talented and such a nice man. I almost, I can't, I just can't bear the thought of, of the fact that he is no longer with us. And he was such a joy to work with. You know, those are long days because they would shoot the courtroom. They would shoot the courtroom stuff all together because they, you know, for location reasons. So you would do nothing for a couple of days and then you'd spend, you know, 48 out of 72 hours on that set. 
And that, that you have to really want to be around the people who are there. Mm-hmm. If he just made every day so fun, he just made every day like acting camp. Judith Light, that was another one hundred percent of the time, awesome times. I love Judith; she's just so cool. Yeah. And um, oh my gosh, I got really lucky with those two. But you know, everybody was great. Yeah, like Ned Eisenberg. Like, you know, he, I know him mostly from this show and he, you know, is kind of a jerk character, but there's still something so endearing about him. You know, you really like, you like oh, him. Right. No, even though, you yeah, know. Yeah, he's so great. He's, yeah. he's a clever guy. He's really smart. He's really funny. Um, and he and BD ended up, and of course, BD, you know, unfortunately, BD and I did not, we, we weren't in the courtroom a lot together, but BD and I are good friends. And uh, having a day with him was really great. And he was in a play with Ned a few years ago. Um, and I went to see it and I was like, oh, it's all my favorite things all at once. It's just not law and order, but there it is. Yeah. We did have BD on the podcast and he did mention that you guys are good friends. So we were hoping yeah. that he would, you know, he give you that. a little nudge to do our podcast. <laughs> um, you know, unfortunately, were you able to see BD? Because BD has actually not aged at all. We had dinner two weeks ago. Uh, it was BD and Dan and his husband, Mike, and, and Becca, actually, the aforementioned Rebecca Perkins. And it was I mean, Rebecca and I could not stop staring at BD. We were like, what is he doing? What is yeah. secret? That guy looks the same. It's crazy. We told him that too. We were like, there's just no way that you're 60. And he was like, I mean, this is it. We, were, I just could not believe it. He looks like fully Benjamin buttoning. But he yes. also mentioned that you were the, he mentioned to us that you were like a big restaurant person and that you're the person to talk to for like wrecks of the new hot places in New York. I mean, I used to be, I'm, I'm used to be, my game used to be sharper, especially in a pre-COVID world. But one of my best friends does uh, hospitality uh, PR. And so I get to go to all of the great places with her, which is fun. Oh, it's that's good. really nice. That's really fun. And you can still buy an actor with a free drink. I'll be in New York <laughs> um, next week. Is there a hot new spot I should check out? Actually, there are two. And I'm proud to say that I have a, I am a tiny a tiny bit of an investor. I have a small piece of the action in both of them, and both of them are quite popular right now. One is a very chic Indian restaurant called Sona, which is on 20th Street, and it's just kind of it's written up in Vogue, and we got a great review in the New York Times, and the food is really good, and the scene is really great, and it's just gorgeous, and the cocktails are great. And then the other is Temple Bar. And I don't know if you remember Temple Bar from before, but it's basically where everybody went in the 80s and 90s to have an affair or quit their job and get a new job. It's on Lafayette. It's on Lafayette street between it's just North of Houston. It's one block yeah. North of Houston on Lafayette and it's temple bar. And we have very thoughtfully not re- we haven't redone it so much as restored. We've kept the logo and we've kept the lighting and we've kept the sexy phone booths. And so the vibe is very similar to what it was when we first experienced it. So I cannot recommend either of those enough. They're I wrote them down. I can't wait. But if I may say so. Love it. Um, but we were talking about we were talking about uh your like relationships with other cast members, and it seems like you always have sort of a sweet mentor mentee relationship with Fred Thompson as well, the former senator slash district oh, attorney. You know, Fred was somebody I it, it really did really make me weepy last night watching that scene with him. I loved working with Fred. Yeah. He was such a gentleman. And and just so, just so professional. You know, we, we for whatever reason we always ended up shooting late at night. You know, I would wait most of the day, and then I would be called at three o'clock in the afternoon, and then I'd work until two o'clock in the morning. Mm. And for whatever reason, Fred and I always ended up in these scenes late at night. It's not just lit that way; it often kind of was that way. And here he is, and he just 
was, he always knew his lines. He was always the absolute gentleman holding a door open, a lovely conversation. He was a freaking senator. I mean, Fred was a busy person. He had a lot going on. And I look at what's happening in politics today, and we don't have to get too political, but, you know, Fred was a Republican senator from Tennessee. He couldn't have been just a more decent and more wonderful person. And I loved working with him. And he was great at his job. Gosh, he was good at it. Oh, wow. So there's that. Well, I'll... Outside of the main, you worked with so many people that were on the cast and recurring. Um, were there any days where you saw the guest star or who you were going to grill on the stand and you were like, holy shit, this is, I can't believe this is happening? Well, okay. So I, there wasn't a, so for a hot second, Diane Weiss was Fred Thompson, had Fred Thompson's role as the DA. And I worked with Diane Weiss in a couple of scenes and she is probably one of my favorite actresses of all time, like of all time. And I almost couldn't work with her because I was so nervous to be working with legend. And she really didn't care that much about the show. She could have been nicer, but she was, she really didn't <laughs> want to be there. And uh, she was just, just kind of out of there. She's like, this is a little formulaic. And I don't think it's for me. And, but she was very nice. And of course she was very good. And then we had Lena Olin on one of our episodes. I don't know if you yeah. remember it or watched it. Yes. But I will say for all of the insanely good looking people that have come across the Law & Order stage, no one tops Lena Olin for like natural gorgeousness. Oh, I mean, wow. all of us were falling. I mean, like, can we get you something to drink? Are you, oh, oh, look, oh, that coat is so beautiful on you. Oh, here, please sit here. I mean, we couldn't. It's <sighs> like we all collectively from cameraman to grip to me, had a crush on her. Even Chris, <laughs> who is so professional. But, you know, Chris, Chris has, he has to keep, you know, most actors have to keep kind of a sort of a personal distance just so you can stay in character. You know, you can't just be chatting all the time because you can't concentrate. And even Chris was just kind of like, how are you doing today, Lena? Like, no, what would you have for lunch? You know, I mean, we, we just, we're just obsessed with her. Oh, my God. I love it. Um, it knockout. That's awesome. Wait, I was going to ask you when you were rewatching the episode last night, because, okay, you're talking about some beautiful women, but what about when you have to go head to head with some of these hot guys? Because last night I was real, when we were rewatching it, I was sensing a lot of chemistry between you and the DEA guy who got blown up. He was right before he got blown up. Kaboom. Yeah. Right? I felt like maybe a date was going to happen with you. No, but then it turned out he was married with kids. But, you know, I, I really felt like there was a chemistry with you too. Well, you know what's so funny? You know, Peter Herman was brought on. They were toying with the idea of making him permanently Cabot's boyfriend. How hilarious is that? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, Peter Herman appeared on the show in the context of being a possible love interest for Cabot. And then they decided that they just didn't really want to do that with the show. And what was working about regular law and order was the fact that the characters didn't really have personal lives. And they just didn't want to go down that road. And then, you know, Peter ends up marrying Mershka. Yeah, you were, you were there for that. that whole romance blossoming, huh? Yes. No, I watched it. I mean, I, I met him first. <laughs> and then was it obvious, like, when they started flirting, where was everyone like, oh, we know what's going to go down? Well, Marushka's just so funny and she's so charming. So I mean, there's rarely a person around her who isn't delighted by her company. She's <laughs> just a ton of fun. And Peter is so... They're very complimentary characters. He's incredibly thoughtful. He's incredibly kind. He's incredibly... Decent. He also speaks three languages. He went to Yale. He was Teach for America's first volunteer. He literally oh is number God. one in their register. Yeah, oh. he has a lot to recommend him in terms of what kind of character he is. And they just, um, it's funny because they, 
they really did just kind of hit it off from the beginning. She was in one of the scenes. I can't remember why she was there. I think Benson comes to tell Cap. It might not have even made it into an episode, but I think we're we're on some kind of date or dinner. I, I can't remember what it is, but but Benson shows up, and so obviously we're all shooting the scene together. And I'm like, what? What's going on here with these two? And then you know, cut to three kids later. Yeah, you there we just are caught the vibe. our houses in the Hamptons <laughs> having each other over. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, do you know that there's a lot of uh, fan? Thick of Cabot and Benson ending up together and you guys being each other's romantic lesbian love affairs. Not only do I know that, <laughs> but the last time I was on the show, Marishka and I, just to mess with everybody, when we were saying goodbye in a scene shot on a city corner downtown by City Hall at night, we kissed on camera just to mess with the editors. Just to see if they, she was like, oh, how are you doing? I was like, I'll see you again. You know how it is. With, I mean, it was kind of like one of those, you know, Will anybody win? Will justice win? And then we just kissed each oh other spontaneously God. and then we could not stop laughing. So that exists somewhere. So that is somewhere on the editing room floor. Somewhere. I, 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 I bet they tore that up. But uh, we were just messing with them. We could not stop laughing. That's so funny because, yeah, there's all, you know, there's been this decades of Benson Stabler, which we're not really a part of. We're not really on that team. And then there's a lot of people that are like, Forget the men. It's got to be Benson and Cabot. And um, I don't know, you guys would make a pretty hot couple. And now that this kiss is out there, who knows? It's, it's out there somewhere. And she's so fabulous. I mean, come on. We're each other's half birthdays. I think that matters somehow, <laughs> astrologically. Um, I also think what was really important about the show is none of us were anybody's girlfriend. And, you know, despite uh-huh. my earlier, uh, it, it was a story about people in their jobs, not, not, guys with jobs and the girls they date. And I think it was really meaningful for people to see two women have a relationship with one another rooted in something other than just, isn't it fun to be here at this party? You know, (laughs) it was rooted in a really deep passion for something and an overlapping passion. And I think that probably that friendship and that professional integrity and just seeing two women together on camera who can have a strong scene and it's not about some dude. um, I think that's important. And that didn't yeah. happen very often when we first started. Well, and you also, like, aren't scared of any of the dudes. Like, you are yelling at Stabler to do the, his fucking job a lot. Like, it, um, you talk to Cragen. I mean, it, it's also, like, two really badass characters all the way through. Such... When I watched it last night, I, I, so I, since the episode, of course, I've watched every episode of Narcos and Narcos Mexico. And so I look at Cabot yesterday and I'm thinking, what are you doing? Those guys are going to kill you. I mean, having <laughs> watched Narcos now, I understand. Back off. I know. Alex. I know. Die. Now that we've seen so much cartel, like, you know, there's been a lot of cartel content, like since right? that episode came out, you're like, oh my God, leave it alone. Yeah. What is she thinking? She's just going to go on that guy's yacht? I mean, what the hell? Yeah, the DEA guys were right. They're like, um, they'll take down a whole plane of people. Like, please stop. And yeah. you're like, absolutely not. Yeah. He's so positive they're going to extradite him. But even, I mean, that passion then later when you leave with the episode Witness to like go to the Congo, that character, like she's just passionate about her work and justice. And that's what makes her so good at her job. Well, what I like is that when she started, and this is what I really tried, you know, you're always trying to come up with things to keep it interesting or rich or give that person a full inner life. You know, wherever they're, whenever they appear on camera, in theory, they've just come from somewhere, right? Um, they exist somewhere in my imagination. 
So at first, when Alex started, I decided that she was a person who was very, very committed to doing her job by the letter of the law, because this is kind of, you know, for a lot of attorneys, you work for a few years in, in this capacity, and then you get hired by some hot shit firm, right? That's what you do. You kind of prove yourself in a real litigating capacity and, you know, it's kind of like doing theater, so then you can star in a movie, right? So I decided that she really wanted to be a, a kind of a hard ass at work because her goal was to get this massive corporate job and really make it. And then over time, exposure to the people she worked with and the cases she was working on and her commitment to her profession changed her personally. And it's been so fun to be able to grow that over a legitimate period of time. It's played out as I hoped. Yeah. Yeah. No, it it definitely did. It definitely comes across that that uh, ambition she had at the beginning and then transferring it to sort of the greater good. But when you left, because this, this episode loss is when you leave for a minute. Were you leaving to go do other projects? Were you like, uh, did you feel like you had to step away so you could come back? And did you always know you were going to come back at all? Like, because you come in and out of the, the series like two or three times. Well, it was two things. I, I did it like an idiot. And I, by that, <laughs> I mean, I had had so much success early that what I thought was going to happen, I was, I was just going to go from job to job. And at that point, I had done, you know, a hundred and something episodes. And the success of the show is that it is, rooted in a certain rhythm and a certain familiarity and it, and a certain pattern that's very true to life. And as an actor, after a certain point in time, you think, I gotta, I, I've gotta be somebody other than Alex Cabot. Mm-hmm. I just gotta, I've gotta, you know, I gotta not wear a suit. Um, and so I was a young actor and I wanted to do more things, but I truly wish that I had understood at the time. And remember, everything was changing. It was reality television was starting and that was becoming the thing, you know, and they were about to put Jay Leno on the air every night for an hour. And, and it was all about low cost production and, you know, reality stars and you couldn't do TV and movies and there wasn't streaming and it like the television landscape was very different. And so I thought I was going to have to leave the show to do something else. And if I had been more creative, I probably would have tried to find a way to do both because I miss Alex a lot. Yeah. And I love Alex. And the reason they didn't kill Alex, the reason she went into witness protection is because, as Dick told me, he made a huge mistake when he killed Joe Hennessy because he always wanted to bring her back. <laughs> so it's like anybody who shows up on time and knows their lines, yeah. he probably won't kill. <laughs> that was a terrible idea. And I can't bring her back. So did you just get a call one day and they're like, please come back? Or were you like, yeah. I'm not, okay. Basically, perfect. they said you want to do half a season, and I said, "Yeah, sure, I'd love to do half a season." You know, or am I going to get to do some fun stuff? Can I wear pants this time? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know, and they said yes. And it's so. I mean, the greatest thing about this job is that I live in New York, and New York is a character on the show, right? Right. So I get to show up in my city, work with these amazing people. Um, really explore all of these different corners of, of Manhattan and Bronx and Brooklyn that I never would have and have a great time and, and act my face off sometimes. Yeah. It's, it's such a great job. Yeah. So when you came back for season 19, is it like, oh, old like visiting your old high school? Or is everyone the same? Is it new people? And you're like, hey, don't you remember me? What is the vibe when you come back uh, the, your most recent episode? Well, first of all, like I'm older now. You know, this is a while ago. So everybody is totally tattooed. That for, the first thing I always thought is, oh my god, the camera crew is like 23 and they're totally tatted up and they're such badasses. 
Was it like that always? Mm-hmm. Uh, there are far more women behind the camera than there used to be, which is outstanding. Yeah. The set is just filthy. They have got to deep clean that thing. I don't care <laughs> how good it looks on camera. I don't care how they've judged it. I don't care how they've moved more stuff. It's like, get in there and get to it. I, I, I honestly can't believe it. So there's that. But in terms of Alex and that, it feels, it's like uh, seeing an old friend and, and no time has passed. Yeah. Yeah, that's fun. I love that. Did you, like, I know you were in 97 episodes, so this might seem like a very, you know, broad question and you can definitely pass on it, but were there any episodes, like, we always talk about the episodes that haunt us. Like, we've seen every episode of the show, you know, multiple times, but there's a few that I'm like, oh my God, this one really, like, when I- Changed my life, saddens us. (laughs) I think about it, you know, or like, were there any like that for you or any that you, like, changed your perspective on anything or, you know? You know, I think what happened, I remember thinking on days that I worked, I couldn't read the paper because it was too much bad news. Yeah. It was just too, like, too much. And I don't think it's an accident that most of us, I mean, certainly Marishka, certainly me, certainly BB, have become involved in organizations that address the issues that we talk about on the show. Because this kind of full-time immersion in this really dark place, you feel like you need to do something about it in real life, right? So is it any one thing? I mean, there's an episode about an honor killing that's basically right when I first started that I thought, oh my God, I can't believe this happens in the world. It happens all the time. There's there's a shocking amount of child sexual abuse that it's just, it is ripped from the headlines. I mean, headlines are often worse, actually. Um, So over time, exposure to this material, I think has made us really rethink rethink how we want to spend our philanthropic efforts where we want to put them. It's not easy to walk away from. Yeah. And I was reading on a little bit about you and I know you've had uh, involvement with Planned Parenthood and the organization Safe Horizon. Are you still involved with those organizations or is there an organization that you currently work with? Very much so. Uh, yeah, I don't. I'm not on the board of Safe Horizon anymore. But for, just for no other reason, I just I just became so busy. But the Safe Horizon phone number was actually the number that they flashed at the end of every episode of the first season of SVU, because it was one of the few organizations in the United States to address uh, sexually violent crimes. Wow. And uh, I'm still very involved with Planned Parenthood. My great grandmother actually founded Planned Parenthood of West Texas in 1938. Oh wow. my gosh. Ruby Webster March. And that was the West Texas Mother's Health Clinic. I think that's what it was called at the time. And then it was absorbed into Planned Parenthood. And she would be really appalled at what's happening today. I'm just saying, Mimi would yeah. not be happy about it. But anyway, if somebody in 1938 thinks it's a good idea, let's get on board here in 2022. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, I proudly donate to P- Planned Parenthood every month in Mike Pence's name. Um, I think my donation is still holding <laughs> over. so awesome. <laughs> No, it's really incredible that SVU has been so ahead of its time on so many important issues that are now still being talked about. And like, there are just episodes from season four that are still issues today. I think about one of my most haunting was the episode with Kate Menig and she was trans and they sent her to the uh, boy prison and then Benson uh, calls you and is like, meet me at the hospital. Uh, and like, that yeah. scene lives in me all the time. And it's just like, so it, fucked that it's it still be, an issue. It be, it's absolutely still an issue. It could be headline news right now. 
it's, you know, I will tell you something that's sort of scary. When I started, the number of sex crimes, first of all, who knows how many are actually brought to trial or, or people press charges, but the number of times somebody was convicted, is, the conviction rate is 4%. Nice. 4%. So that's, um, it's better now. I would not say it's amazing, but it's significantly better. But if that tells you how, it's just, it's not a subject matter anybody wanted to talk about or face. And I really credit the show with making that part of a national conversation around something that people have been really afraid to talk about. Yeah. Um, we definitely have learned so much from, I mean, I, like I had to, we did, we covered the episode witness where you have your, your amazing relationship with, um, uh, oh. Narda Lee, the actress Saida Eric Akalona, who we also talked to on our podcast. She's um, great, isn't she? Yeah, one of she the most powerful amazing. on the stand performances. Oh, she's ever fantastic. Seen. She is so good. Okay. Well, yeah, yeah. No. Absolutely. Absolutely. No. I wasn't. I. I wasn't trying to interrupt. I just. Um. Yeah. I was just say, saying. You know, like the atrocities in the Congo. Would I have known about that if I didn't watch SVU? I can't say for sure. You know, right. like there's there's so much that they, uh, I think that they're constantly reinventing and finding new ways to bring issues to the forefront. And not but. as serious of an issue, but I love whenever um, you or any of the DAs like go into a giant board meeting and take down a huge company and it was like the kid who was licking lead oh. off the cars. <laughs> <laughs> And so I'll forever know what Pika is uh, because of <laughs> BD Wong. Oh my, yeah, exactly. You know what's so funny? I one of my goals—it's not really, really—it's you set small goals for yourself in the middle of a scene, and you know, there's always water on the tables in the courtroom. Have you noticed that? They've always got a pitcher of water, yeah. two glasses. And I was like, one of these times, I'm going to drink water. <laughs> I'm going to drink water in Canada. These pitchers that I've been looking at for four years are not just going to. I mean, and so I would slowly, I would drink a glass of water. They snap back and I'd be having sipping my water thoughtfully, and I was like. I had never made it in there. I was like, I am going to drink water on camera if it kills me. Never happened. Wow. No, they're not going to change. Anybody on the show now? Yeah. Nope. It's not. That's not the deal. And this is more silly, but we did talk to Neil Bear and we talked about Rory Culkin, that episode uh, Manic and his wig. Was it hard not to laugh at the wig? Were you uh, <laughs> distracted by the wig? <laughs> afford to be distracted by anything because mine, you know, you've got to learn legalese, right? You have to, you have to present this material like, like you're not memorizing it. Like you just know what you're talking about. You know, you know what I mean? Like artists don't have to come up with the right words and the technique of the, of the paint that they're using. You know, you just, it's your vocabulary, right? It's your vernacular of your profession. So I was always really fixated on my lines, probably more so than other people's, you know, costume. But Sure. Working with Neil was one of the most fun things. Neil came up with some of the most creative ideas. He loved bringing on the most eclectic group of actors. He, oh, he's so awesome. He's yeah, so we've talked to him twice and we are obsessed with him. Uh, and yeah, like Lena Olin, he brings in all these like beautiful actresses from like, not o like older years, but you know, like that maybe I hadn't yeah. seen, you know, that they kind of get like a second life Neil Bear is a lover of the lady actor. Yes, for sure. He's told us a lot about that. Um, well, speaking of lady love, I'm I am obsessed with Kathy Griffin when she comes on the episode PC and is immediately obsessed with you, like because you're so beautiful. She just like is jaw on the floor. Like, did you like working with comedians? And like, how was working with her? Um, I was so intimidated by her because you know she's so bright and she's so sharp and she's so funny, and I was nervous, you know, <laughs> some dope. Um, 
And she could not have been nicer. Could not have been nicer. It's funny, you know, often the people who play the irredeemable assholes are actually the most pleasant people in real life to work with. I mean, she's she's incredible. I don't know if the episode recently... Oh, John Glazer's episode aired recently. Yeah. And John is a friend. I've worked with him in the past. And he's like, my specialty is slime ball. But he's the nicest guy. He's so good. So, you know, anytime somebody comes on with a little snark, it's probably going to be a fun day. Yeah. Well, we have not asked anyone. We've talked to a few cast members and I can't believe we haven't. But any insight you can tell us on the Christmas parties? What are the SVU holiday parties like? (laughs) Oh, fascinating. (laughs) Really? Did you hear about the rap parties or the Christmas parties? Well, either. I mean, Christmas, we're, we're, we're into the holiday party vibe, but the rap parties too. Sure, tell us anything. Yeah. You know, what ended up happening with all of this stuff is that you would just be so tired by the end of the season. You're like, please, my Christmas present to me is my day off. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, it's like, if you really want to give me a Christmas present, give me a jacket that doesn't have the logo of the show on it so that <laughs> I can either wear it without being recognized or re-gift it to somebody who will enjoy it. Mostly, I'm always trying to get non-logo apparel. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I don't want to wear a big SVU sweatshirt. So I I will wear them for you. Um, I do have an extensive SVU merch. <laughs> that's what I, I think they're meaningful gifts. Yeah, but I don't I don't want the merch. I think that's like wearing a Target. I can't believe we didn't ask you what has been some of your craziest um, fan interactions when you're recognized on the street. You know, mostly people are really, really nice. I think this show strikes a chord in people that's quite personal and they're, and they're just uh, so enthusiastic, but I will tell you, you know, it used to be, oh my gosh, I love your show. I watch it all the time. It's so much fun. And that, and you know, in the last five years, it's, oh my gosh, my mom loves your show. It's her favorite <laughs> show. And I think that's cool. Uh, do you watch it? <laughs> the people are really sweet. People are great. The only time I ever, anything got weird was I was walking in Times Square once. It's, it's, it is almost entirely dependent on whether or not I wear my glasses because I wear glasses in real life. And the reason Alex Cabot wears glasses is because that was my first on-camera job. And I didn't think that I would be able to see my marks and my lights. I hadn't worked in television before. And so I said, I think she wears glasses because I couldn't see a freaking thing. Um, And then it just became kind of a hallmark for the character, which is great. But now whenever I wear my glasses, um, I got to be prepared for for, and now everybody has a phone, right, with a camera. So I, I bet right. there's some really crappy pictures of me out there in my glasses. <laughs> so it goes. So it goes. Well, speaking of fans of the show, how did you feel about Mickey Rourke when he uh, <laughs> discovered SVU about 20 years later and had a passionate declaration of love on Instagram for the show? I So I've been kind of keeping myself off social media, especially since in the last year, because it just made me a little, like, nutso. But... Uh, a friend of mine alerted me to what was going on, and and I, I mean, I, I pretty much called everybody I knew, and I was like, oh, I'm on friends with Mickey Work. <laughs> that's basically what I said. Like, I haven't met him. We we'll probably will. We we'll probably hang out. Yeah. He, I, and you know, we Instagram friend each other. Hey, how today? What's going on? <laughs> um, I, I died. I, I, it was probably one of the greatest compliments I've ever received. In my life. It was so funny. It was so sincere and like, hey, have you guys seen the show SVU that's been running for 22 seasons at that point? Like, It made (laughs) my day. So good. And I'm a huge fan. I preface this by saying I'm a huge fan, but he was like, Marvel, what? (laughs) SVU is out there. But wow, that is... 
That is high praise. Oh my gosh. Will you tell us about Naomi? We saw amazing leather fun outfits and we've talked to your co-star Malzum Makar on the show. Uh, oh, Malzum, of course we talked to Malzum. Yeah. Yeah, she told us a little bit about the show, but what is your role? Oh, I'm an intergalactic badass. All of, and I say this because this is exactly how the character was described to me when I was auditioning. She is an intergalactic badass, a la Ripley. And I thought, do I want to be an intergalactic oh. badass with superpowers for Ava DuVernay? The answer is a very quick, yes, I do. So that has been really fun. And Amazing. would you come That's back really to SVU? Yeah, if, that was my next yes, question. Yeah. <laughs> we want more. You're now like helping um, people escape terrible situations. And are we going to see more of Alex Cabot? Here's what I say about SVU. SVU is the boyfriend you can never quit. Okay. Running into SVU yeah. <laughs> is pretty much always a yes. So never say never. Before we... No, I, I mean, we're going to let you go because we've already taken up a lot of your time. But like, just before you... Like any last minute, super funny, like your go-to funny story that you like to tell uh, SVU fans or anyone that you meet, like of memories or something funny that happened on the set? I wish I could help you out here and I would love to privately, but in the culture in which we live in right now, no freaking way will I share that with you. <laughs> it's only gallows humor will get you through those days and I shan't be recorded saying it. How excited were all of you for that interview? How about that? How about that? She was that? spilling some tea. We were getting some info. And we got, um, you know, a kissing situation. And yeah. She's so cool, though. I would like, I'm like, it's like her, Laura Benanti. It's like, you're not allowed to be like smart, funny, hot, and cool, too. Like, I need you to be like a jerk or not interesting, you know? But alas, no, I just Some people are allowed to have all these gifts. <laughs> How sad would it be if Stephanie March sucked? That would be devastating of to all course, of us. <laughs> of course, that would have been. I, what would we have done? We'll be like, okay, roll the tape. No, she yeah. was amazing, and I don't know if there's a ton of takeaway from this episode for our practical lives because neither of us are involved in you know it, transnational drug trade. Um, but I would say, yeah, if the Colombian cartels are coming at you. Maybe back back off. I don't know. I, I personally, from what I've seen, I wouldn't be. Um, oh no, I would be the I would be the front of house guy at the uh, restaurant. Yeah, I would go. I don't know that man. Yeah, no, nope, no idea. Absolutely not. Peace. Then put me in jail, bitch. I don't give a fuck. Are you kidding? Like, yeah, I don't. But that's why we're not in, working in the justice system because. Yeah, I also probably would not drop my life to go to the Congo and fight for women's rights. I mean, I'm no Alex Cabot. That's for sure. Yeah, but I don't get all of them. Always, I don't need protective. I don't want. I don't. It's why. Just take it. I know. Liv is always like. Like, I'm fine. It's like, there's a serial killer who's actually, like, using your name in the clues. <laughs> like, and I can do it. I can handle it. It's, like, crazy. Um, but, yeah, an amazing episode. Like, and I was, you know, happy to learn about uh, Pablo Escobar because, like I said, I never watched Narcos. I didn't really know. I just knew the sort of general um, scariness, but... Well, yeah, and the flight thing is true. Like, they will kill. They don't yeah. care. They don't care. Yeah. These are just, like business people. Yeah. <laughs> and I really soul. wonder how things would operate if drugs were legalized, you know? Yeah. And these people just were running legitimate businesses, you know? They know how to do it. They know how to move the product. 
Yeah, you know? do they want to pay tax? I can't even. I yeah. cannot get into all of that. But <laughs> it is one of my favorite episodes. I feel the acting is so like top notch in this episode with Dave Thornton and Petrovsky and just like Zapata, the anger, the boats. Like I, um, I just like I, I think this is one of my top twenty episodes. I really enjoy it. Yeah, no, it is a, it is definitely a good one. It has everything. It has like bureau conflict and chases and lies and secrets and cliffhangers. It's and um, like best. twists for days. I mean, like the twist at the end is, I remember watching it for the first time and being like jaw on the floor. Um, But I liked it. We had a great time. So let's segue right into What Would Sister Peg Do, our weekly segment where we give you guys an organization, an article, a book, a documentary, something to help flush out uh, more of what we talked about in today's episode. And we'd like to highlight this week the organization, the Washington Office of Latin America, which is WOLA, W-O-L-A.org is the website. And uh, they are the leading research and advocacy organization that advances human rights in the Americas. And they partner with people throughout the Americas to identify urgent human rights issues and proposed research-based policy changes. They specifically have a program on changing drug policy, which is uh, in direct relation to today's app. And um, I'll just quote from their website so you guys don't think that I'm just extemporaneously giving up blurb. Wola believes that the U.S.-led, quote, war on drugs has failed to suppress the production, trafficking, or consumption of illegal drugs while enriching and empowering criminal enterprises. The enforcement of harsh drug laws has led to human rights abuses, overcrowded prisons, and threats to democratic institutions. And um, I think we can all agree, yeah, the war on drugs has been was lost a long time ago. And Wola advocates for reducing the harms caused by the drug trade and drug policies themselves. So, a great organization. You can learn more or donate at wolawola.org. That's wolawola.org. Thank you for that. And next week, we keep on rolling. Um, old, old school ep, Stolen, season three, episode three. Pretty fun one. So yeah. um, very excited that you listen to us. Honestly, so grateful and so happy I get to watch so much SVU. Thanks for messaging us. Keep messaging us to our Insta, to our email. We love you guys. See you next week. That's Messed Up is an Exactly Right production. If you have compliments you'd like to give us or episodes you'd like us to cover, shoot us an email at thatsmesseduppod at gmail.com. Follow the podcast on Instagram at That's Messed Up Pod and on Twitter at Messed Up Pod. And follow us personally at Kara Clank and at Glitter Cheese. As always, please see our show notes for sources and more information. Thank you so much to our producer, Annalise Nelson. And to our mixer, John Bradley. And to Henry Kapersky for our theme song and Carly Jean Andrews for our artwork. Thank you to our executive producers, Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, Danielle Kramer, and everybody at Exactly Right Media. Dun, dun! dun. <laughs> Follow That's Messed Up and SVU Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show. Visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase That's Messed Up merch.